0: Hey Tristan! What's up Tim? Nick Cage is in a surprising amount of movies about unconventional weapons, including movies about nuclear, biological, chemical weapons. I don't know, do you think the reason is because his agent is trying to win a game of WMD bingo or something? If he is, I'm not sure where
1: Ghost Rider and
0: Wicker Man fit in. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Nuke Cage podcast, where we delve into the fun and completely rational way Nick Cage takes on weapons of mass destruction. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons, works on nuclear security for a living, and has unbridled rage that only Nick Cage can assuage.
1: And I'm Tristan Volpe, a nuclear proliferation scholar by trade. So for the show today, I'll be speaking in my personal capacity, taking on the role of being the general public who has to endure Nick Cage movies year after year, and specifically not only during his high mark in the 90s, but during some of his worst years recently.
0: Uh, You mean gets to endure and celebrate Nick Cage, uh, which we'll do today on this first day of April. April 1st, we are going to continue our journey celebrating the catalog of Nick Cage movies where he plays a character who gets his hands dirty, with bio, nuke, and chemical material, or weapons. And on the menu for today are Nick Cage WMD movies, where he seems to thrive in a post-Cold War security environment. He really does it all, doesn't he? Indeed.
1: He's got it all covered. He's also uh, tackling the bees epidemic in Wicker Man, so...
0: (laughs) Gotta worry about those bees. Gotta get your honey.
1: Uh, Indeed.
0: So we've got a couple here to talk about. got Next, from 2007, where he takes the time to take on terrorists with a stolen Russian nuke in Los Angeles. We're going to also talk a little bit about The Rock from 1996, where he is stuck between a hard place and some rogue military units threatening chemical weapons attacks on San Francisco. We're going to also talk about Face Off from 1997, a two-faced tale of bioweapons and identity crises. And because this is an extra special episode of the Nuke Cage podcast, let's talk about some uh, conventional weapons too. We're going to talk about Lord of War from 2005. A good actor, Nicolas Cage, sells smuggled conventional weapons to some bad actors. Tristan, why does this seem to keep happening where Nick Cage is just getting involved right after the end of the Cold War? It seems be he really thrives in this environment. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I remember when we thought about this idea a few years ago, it seemed as as though Nick Cage was really thriving in, in these action movies that emerged uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it dawned on us that he had... Starred in a movie for essentially every WMD boogeyman system out there. So, in, in many ways, Nick Cage really came to fame, you know, drawing attention to these sort of, of, of threats.
0: Yeah, so not only does he kind of come about at the end of the Cold War in terms of his action profile, his stardom, but the fact that he draws attention to this pressing need of, of weapons of mass destruction no longer being just at the state level. It's non-state actors having this stuff, too, which is really what the focus was. And I don't know what he's trying to say there, but I appreciate the mission statement. If you, if you think about the broad kind
1: of arc of Nick Cage's career, it, it almost kind of mirrors the American unipolar moment. You know, mm. he rose to fame during this period of time in which the Soviet Union collapsed. He became quite wealthy, became one of the kind of biggest A-list uh, celebrities for these sort of action movies. Uh, and then by the you know, mid to late 2000s, he had lost you know, most of his money. Obviously, the U.S. has lost most of its kind of mm-hmm. power capability, but you know, his, his kind of decline from this really high watermark, the late 1990s, you know, is, is, an, is an interesting parallel.
0: We'll have to see what happens when maybe the Cold War gets restarted again with the resurgence of Russia, what that's going to do to Nick Cage's career. We're going to have to keep an eye on yeah. how that's going to be the main. That's really what I think we're all concerned about. He's not a great power competition actor, though. I know. What's going
1: to happen? He's really a non-state actor guy.
0: Well, uh, we're going to break down the plots of these non-state actor WMD movies. Basically, we'll talk about how Nick Cage takes care of WMD business, the amazing and sometimes not so amazing attention to detail about the weapons in these movies, uh, which we blame entirely on the writing staff and the director, not on Nick Cage, of course, And uh, we'll have some concluding thoughts for for this week and why we think there are so many of the movies that Nick Cage deals with are about uh, WMD. So as usual, spoiler warning, we're going to get into it. Uh, So if you haven't seen any of these four movies, I don't know what you're doing. Pause the episode, watch these movies, and get back to us. You'll appreciate this more if you have a little bit of background here.
1: Wait, who hasn't seen Face Off? (laughs) or the rock i understand if you haven't seen next because it's a terrible movie but i mean come on
0: i mean maybe a baby that was born in the last like couple of weeks hasn't seen it yet but that's on the parents to be honest any
1: 90s kid has seen face off in the rock and if you haven't i'm very disturbed
0: (laughs) first movie let's talk about it the movie it's called next the weapon nuclear the character chris johnson aka frank cadillac the hairstyle because Nick Cage always has a different amazing hairstyle in each one of his movies. I'm going to call this one Mushroom Mullet. I think that's the best way to describe it. And the level of Cage rage. How much does he peak in terms of his general raging abilities? Four out of ten. Not too bad, but there's some there's some moments there where you get a, a flash of Nick Cage rage a little bit. I would say it's even lower
1: than four, but you know, full disclosure, I only made it through half of this movie before i decided this isn't how i wanted to spend my time on earth
0: fair enough i i'll torture myself with it during the first half of the movie
1: he did seem to be remarkably subdued for nick cage i'd put it almost at a two or three
0: okay well i'll revise this down let's call it a three that's By fair. the way,
1: so uh, can can we define the spectrum of cage rage? What's a ten? Is that like Wicker Man, I like think not the is, bees?
0: Ten is definitely not the bees. You know, I, killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey. <laughs> I would say that is definitely where the ten is. Bad Lieutenant gets to a ten.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, yep, Kiss of the Vampire. That's a ten. Uh, so this this movie, we're gonna I'm gonna do a quick little plot summary here that I wrote up, uh, just so that we're all on the same page. Before we get into some of the more nuke discussions and the, the plot discussions. Zillow, so, here's here's how I see this movie. Here's how I interpret it. Since you didn't have the willpower to get through all of it. Uh, I unfortunately did. I actually had to keep my eyes open with one of those things from Clockwork Orange. But here's how I see this movie. Las Vegas magician and day drinker Frank Cadillac is blessed slash cursed with the power to see a few minutes into the future. Sometimes he uses this power to cheat at gambling or conduct his semi-racist magic show. Other times, he uses it to hit on women, run from the cops, and save Los Angeles from terrorists with in possession of a 10-kiloton stolen Russian nuclear weapon. Reluctant to use his ability to help the police and the FBI with this counter-terrorism investigation, Nick Cage goes on the run with his new lady friend that he tricked into coming with him. For some reason of plot purposes, this helps him, because of this relationship he has, see further into the future than he normally could.
1: Okay, so I don't understand, like, anything about this movie. And in particular, do, do you understand how his, like, magic works? Like, I, I did, it just made, it wasn't explained at all.
2: I'm not a god. I can't see everyone's future. Only my own. And only within two minutes. Except for when I saw her. But we'll come back to that.
0: I think he's just born with the gift. I, I would have loved to have been like, and my parents live next to Chernobyl, or some court of like three mile island or something. There I don't think there's anything relating to why he can't. I think he's just kinda of born with it or maybe it's radioactive. I'm not sure.
1: But I so it's less like how he how he acquired this this like magic, but more like the effects. I didn't understand the effects and that's like pretty central to the entire movie, which maybe like want to stop watching it. Yeah so the like rules
0: if... change always about what he can do and can't do with this this ability.
1: Right, I mean, like, to, like stuff with like seeing the future and time travel is always notoriously difficult. So, whenever you have a sci-fi movie that has this element, you, uh, for for it to make any sense, if it's going to be a central plot driver, you've got to just stipulate some basic rules like about the universe. Mm-hmm. So Terminator does this well. I just saw Looper again, and that just kind of really sidesteps a lot of the issues. They kind of actually make a joke about like not wanting to delve into the physics of it. Mm-hmm. But with this movie, it just seems like the rules change a lot and it's not clear. It's not clear like why he's able to like how, like how seeing into the future enables him to do different things. Because if he could see into the future and they does something different, then wouldn't the future be different? Like, I, I just don't, it just doesn't make any sense.
0: Well, I think they, they say things like if you, if you look into the future, it's like observing someone and you can't really observe them if they know they're being observed because they'll change their behavior.
2: Here's the thing about the future, every time you look at it, it changes, because you looked at it, and that changes everything.
0: It's not like he puts on goggles and can see the next 15 seconds or so in the future. He's just constantly aware of everything that could possibly happen. He turns left, here's what happens. He goes right, here's what happens. And he sees all of this information simultaneously. I think that's what's more impressive to me, is to be able to process all that at
1: that's insane it makes no there's no way your brain could compute that you'd essentially like every instant every like step every action you took you would be seeing infinite pathways and timelines that would unfold this movie deals with like none
0: of that you would you would you'd go insane and that's maybe why he's so subdued is he just constantly freaking out about all the things he sees in the future if i go right i'll accidentally you know st- start uh, an avalanche that'll destroy a puppy that's at the bottom of this hill so I, I'm always constantly seeing these terrible outcomes that's got to wear on you
1: yeah sorry for another question on this but but was it clear to you why the FBI
0: thought this would be helpful? Not really, except, I'm not sure where, so so Julianne Moore's in this movie, and she plays Which is shocking, Um,
1: it's shocking she's in this movie There are
0: a lot of these small part actors, Uh, one of the people who plays Mr. Ellsworth on Deadwood, which was probably like my favorite television show, he plays her boss, and he's only in two scenes, he's an amazing actor, and they have all these little bit part actors here and there, but for some reason, you're right. Julianne Moore is in this movie, but not only is she aware of him and thinks that this is their best way of finding these this terrorist group's nuclear weapon that they've smuggled out of Russia, but the terrorist for some reason, know yeah. that he exists. I have no idea why that is the case.
1: Yeah, so maybe this would be a good way to kind of like set up the nuclear aspect of this, which is why would Julianne Moore's FBI character think that that skill... Is going to be useful for their nuke hunting operation. It's not. It's he's just a guy that can see the future. How is that going to help you find a nuke? I don't. It just. It, I don't see the A to B there. Do, did did
0: they ever explain that? Well, so here's here's how it keeps going. So the terrorists, for some reason, they know about Nick Cage's abilities, and they want to hunt him down and oh. kill him before the FBI can use his abilities to stop them from detonating this bomb in Los Angeles and I don't really understand why but they end up kidnapping his lady friend and then now that that's what motivates him it backfires on the terrorist organization because now they force Nick Cage to work with the FBI so what they do is he goes and he sees and he follows the terrorist organization and he gets to some sort of warehouse and what he ends up doing is they kill the terrorist they, they secure the lady friend and then they pull out like a Richter scale machine that Julianne Moore says, all right, look into the future, see where the bomb's going to go off, where the detonation point is. On the Richter scale, it'll say where it is. Then we will go now and look for it at that location because he can see into the future of when the bomb's going to go off. Originally, they tried to trick him or they tried to use his abilities by showing CNN. And they would say, all right, well, when the bomb goes off, I'm sure CNN's going to cover it. So they'll have him report where the bomb went off. And I think that's what she's wanting to do. But the movie, here's where it gets even worse to me, it tricks the viewer because the last couple seconds you see Nick Cage say, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. And then the bomb goes off.
2: The nuclear device was moved. We need to find its exact location. Now this registers any significant detonation in the earth's crust. Take a look, tell me what you see. Something's wrong. Mistake. What? I made a mistake. It's happening. When? Now.
0: it zooms out and it's nick cage in bed with his lady friend and he was just envisioning the entire like second half of the movie then the movie ends with nick cage going off with the fbi to, to maybe save the day who knows because it just kind of suddenly ends and he ends up deciding like oh, i'm gonna go do this without the lady friend's help that's the extent of it so the questions you have i say are very valid yeah i'm really glad i did not finish that movie well what you did miss though you might i don't know if you saw this there's a Dr. Strangelove cameo in the movie. It They're in a hotel room, Nick Cage and his lady friend, who's played by Jessica Biel. And for some reason, in the hotel room, the, one of the war, the war room scenes that Dr. Strangelove is playing, it's the one where, where Turgison says, yes, sir, you're the only one who's authorized to do so. And he goes through this whole thing. And it's just on the TV in the background. Like, they're having these conversations, and Dr. Strangelove is on. If they really want to hit that on the nose, this is a movie about nuclear weapons, right?
1: I assume, I assume somebody from like the Kubrick estate had to authorize them to play that footage <laughs> which which uh, I mean come on I mean that's you can't just interject a good movie into a terrible movie
0: anytime you do that and it makes you want to watch the movie that's within the movie more than the movie you're currently watching that's not a good sign exactly like if you had gotten to the point of that scene in the movie and then you said I'm done with next I'm just going to watch Dr. Strangelove again I would be uh, completely in support of that yeah. Uh, so I've got a few things here. We already kind of talked about the plot a little bit. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about this movie that are frustrating. This actually might be the worst movie I've watched for the podcast that has frustrated me the most. But there is some kind of fun, weird nuke stuff in this film, even though it's not really about nuclear weapons. It's just a MacGuffin to advance the story. Uh, there's a couple things here we can talk about the the missing nuke for some reason that is being involved in the plot. It's described as a a Russian Federation ten kiloton. This is what's interesting. They keep calling it a nuclear munition, and it's unaccounted for. So they they don't call it a nuclear weapon. They keep calling it a, mu- a munition, which makes me think that it's some kind of uh, tactical weapon. It's an artillery device. It's some sort of battlefield weapon, as opposed to we we got a a warhead off of an ICBM or something which you know is how like Peacemaker starts. It's a ICBM based weapon. They keep calling it munition. I've never heard that in a movie before. I don't know if you can think of one.
1: Um I think they're just doing that to try and sound smart. <laughs> they they try and dress up various aspects of the movie in this way. Like they have this like really sophisticated ops center for the FBI and we're looking for nuclear munitions. I mean it just seems like it's a it's a bunch of dressing.
0: Well I took that dressing and I on this uh, mismatched word salad and decided to get really into it. So I, I looked up, you know, I went on in my, all my research and material about what would be a 10 kiloton, which is pretty small for a nuclear weapon in the, in the modern age, and I looked for some kind of 10 kiloton weapon that would be considered to be more tactical, and the one that I came up with is what, in NATO parlance, is the 53T6 Gazelle anti-ballistic missile, which is essentially... Incoming missiles, incoming warheads, let's knock them out of the air with nuclear weapons and nuclear explosions. It's similar to the Nike Zeus Sprint Interceptor in the U.S. uh, where they would try to knock down incoming bombers with nuclear weapons. And according to a 2016 estimate of the Russian arsenal by Hans Christensen and Stan Norris, there are 68 of these launchers that have been deployed since 1986 they have one warhead of 10 kilotons, and they're launched out of some sort of silo or mobile system. And in 2017, if people are following this in the news, Russia tested a new version of this interceptor in Kazakhstan for the Gazelle. I don't know if they did this work, and maybe I'm just doing the work for them. But it it's funny that it seems to be based in something, but it's this weird, basically a ballistic missile system using a nuclear weapon as the uh kinetic kill vehicle i don't know i thought that was fascinating i've never seen yeah anything I think, like that before. i think
1: um i think they should have hired you to uh do the background research
0: for the movie well it's just kind of funny 10 kilotons why not say 100 why not say 200 10 is such a fascinating number for this particular one because they probably didn't understand what that even meant <laughs> well you can see what the bomb looks like there's these there's a few scenes where we see the actual warhead itself uh and for some reason it's in this very nice like padded case metal case they open it up it looks like a violin case with all the, the yeah the one I, di-
1: I didn't get to that part but the one scene i did i did i did see towards the beginning it kind of showed like some really weird i did just some super weird object and i was like what I, I wasn't it was like massive
0: do you remember what i'm talking about well, i was like what is that so there's the warhead i think which looks in for some reason like a large like i thought it looked like a a metal flashlight like a giant novelty flashlight yeah it was really weird or or maybe one of those things you see outside of buildings where people put their used cigarette butts into it looked like one of those and then they they plug that into this larger device that i have no idea what it was (laughs) maybe it's a radiation absorbing metal so they can't so nest can't detect it i i don't really know but it's something weird and i can't i couldn't figure that out But I also couldn't figure out the plot. Like, why is this group doing this? There's no discussion of are they trying to get money? Do they have a political motive? For some reason, this group stole this nuclear device, this munition, five weeks ago, and they've smuggled it into the U.S. for unclear reasons. And this group is fascinating. They're all from different ethnicities. They speak French. They speak German. They speak all these different languages but we're not really sure what they're what they wanting to do. The the FBI is trying to investigate this and they're trying to figure it out. There's a, a nuclear code red alert from LA to San Diego when they're looking for the bomb. They say that So nest- so
1: they never art- articulate like why this group is doing this.
0: No articulation at all. Is it hostage? Is they just trying to explode it to do some sort of, you know, terrorist activity? Completely unclear. There's someone backing this, they say. There's a big man on top that's like backing it and he knows about Nick Cage's abilities and they want to stop him. But other than that, completely unclear.
1: This is a point that seems to come up with some of the other movies we'll talk about, which is underspecified motives of of the various non-state actor groups.
0: It it doesn't. It just likes to use uh, terms that you may have heard in a movie before that deal with nuclear weapons as a driving force. There's one scene where the, the FBI is trying to figure out whether or not the terrorists have the weapon in Los Angeles. And the way they know it is because there's this woman who seems like may have been part of the group or she may have been someone that one of the terrorists picked up at like a bar the night before and she's dead. They find her and inside her body when they do the toxicology report, there's potassium iodine in her system. And the FBI technician says the only reason, literally the only reason someone would have this in their body is to stave off radiation poisoning. People know, they've heard about potassium iodine. Uh, this is after the movie when, you know, Fukushima accident occurred in Japan. People heard about, about potassium iodine a lot uh, as a way to kind of stop uh, cancer in your thyroid from developing from nuclear material in the air. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons why you would want to have potassium iodine in your system. It's a medical tool. It's a, you use it to treat hyperthyroidism. Uh, you can use it as a food supplement if, if you don't have enough seafood in your diet to fight iodine deficiencies. And of course, as everyone knows, it's a source of iodine in thyrotoxic crises. when so you try to prevent that and you try to prevent thyrotoxic patients and thyroidectomies, all of those. Everybody things. knows that. Everybody, Everybody knows that. that. Uh, but it's certainly used with more things than trying to stave off radiation poisoning. And also, if you're handling a nuclear warhead that's leaking, that should be your problem. These things aren't meant to be you can handle them. They're, they're designed to be things you can hold on to unless they're broken. I don't know. I thought that was fascinating. So maybe they dropped it at some point, and that's why they have the nice carrying case.
1: Yeah, you have to have it padded.
0: The last thing I'll say here is I I got really frustrated at the end when this trick that the audience gets pulled uh, over their eyes, The, the fact the bomb goes off and this whole elaborate FBI chase to get Nick Cage all comes down to this plan of using some sort of Richter scale monitor to find out where the detonation point is. So I took them up on their on their machine. I freeze-framed the video. I looked exactly on the map. Where is this bomb said to be detonating? And I compared it to another map of Los Angeles because I'm I'm from the Los Angeles area. I like to see what's being detonated in movies. And according to this, it detonates right next to Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. And right next to it is where now the LA Rams have their stadium. Um, So I pulled up NukeMap, and I tried to figure out, can a 10 kiloton bomb detonate there expand all the way out to where our characters are, which they're at Terminal Island. They're at least somewhere by the, the ocean because they're on like a, a cargo area and without even pulling up Nuke Map, which is a tool that we use. Alec Wellerstein from Stevens Institute of Technology put this together. You can go online and, and click your your favorite aim point and what bomb you want and see what happens. I knew that there's no way that a a 10-kiloton bomb can get all the way out that way. So here's what I assumed. Because they're using Richter scale stuff, I assumed it was some kind of underground test, or at least on the surface. I think that's that's fair to assume that they didn't launch it into the air. According to the filming notes, because I pulled this up. I don't know why I did this, but you can find out where these movies are filmed. It's at Terminal Island. It's seven miles away from the detonation point where we see it. NukeMap says that a bomb with 10 kilotons would result in an air blast radius of 1 PSI, which is the lowest that it can get to, only goes out to 1.58 miles. And that's and the furthest point anywhere where there's ocean from where that detonation took place is 6 miles. So there's just no possible way you see a 10 kiloton bomb causing this much devastation, which is why I asked at the beginning, pick a bigger weapon. Why have a 10 kiloton bomb... It doesn't make any sense there's the general flash of light you see with the standard nuclear imagery um you have the the jackets for some reason nick cage has this mustard colored jacket and that starts to burn up a little bit and everything just kind of explodes there's no mushroom cloud there's nothing uh so usually i like to rate the bomb scenes as either a fizzled dud which is the lowest level a low yield okay attempt where it's got some issues but it's kind of okay or thermonuclear accuracy like the best the gold standard This is clearly a fizzled dud. It doesn't really make any sense. I just don't know why they added so much detail when the detail was wrong. But maybe this movie's not for me. It's because,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I didn't make it to the very end, but I can assume that they added wrong details. For the same reason, they made all the other mistakes in the movie, which is that they didn't do any research and they didn't care.
0: Well, my my phone number's out there. I don't know if you want to have this much detail and accuracy in your film, but there's some good things about this movie. There's a cool chase scene at the beginning in the casino. I'm about to leave in a couple of days to a trip to the Las Vegas area for visiting the nuclear test site out there. So I'm going to be in some casinos and I was enjoying the casino scenes in this movie where he can know exactly where the casino and security guards are going to be at a given moment, so he just kind of avoids them by an inch, kind of does a lot of, like, matrix moves, hides in one little corner, comes out on the side. That stuff was pretty cool. I don't know if you enjoyed... That was...
1: That kept me going for another five minutes.
0: But there there were just too many of these little, uh, oh, guess what? The thing you just saw, that didn't actually happen. It was just in his head. They do that trick so many times. The fact they do it at the end of the movie...
1: One thing that lost me early on was the um, one of the... Uh the central plot elements with Jessica Biel's character. I just like, I didn't understand why he was so obsessed with her. It seemed kind of creepy and weird.
0: Yeah. There's a scene where he's the start. The movie starts with him having a martini at like, I don't know, eight in the morning, nine in the morning. And he just just knows at some point she's going to be at this diner at this time. And he doesn't know when, because she's screwing with his ability to see into the future. We don't know why he likes her. He just seems like he, he thinks she's beautiful, and then they develop a connection, and then they're, they're soulmates. But I don't know. I mean, the only thing we see is we see his ability to use his powers to break up a relationship, to trick a woman into traveling with him to Los Angeles from Las, from the Las Vegas area, and just generally lie to her over and over again. I, I don't think that relationship is going to last too long, despite how long you can see in the future.
1: Yeah, it seems super weird. And that's honestly when I turned the movie off. I think when they were at some sort of like Native American reservation.
0: Yeah. And he was
1: like trying to put the moves on her and I was like, Man, this is just this is too much for me. I I can't I can't handle this anymore. And full and full disclosure, I was I had the flu. This was like back in November. Mm-hmm. I had the flu and I had nothing to do all day except lay in bed and be sick. And I saw this movie pop up. And knowing that we were gonna review it, I was like, all right, I should just knock this one out. But I couldn't even get through it. It was that bad. And I had nothing else.
0: I'm glad I saw it because I can warn people not to see it. I mean, Nick Cage isn't terrible in the movie. He's got some fun lines uh, that he drops here and there. And he's, it just, there isn't a lot for him to do. Um, There isn't, there isn't a, a, what I would say, any sort of foundation, like a rock to build on, uh, which is my subtle way of transitioning to the rock let's let's talk about this one next
1: that was pretty that was pretty on the nose man
0: yeah it's not so not not as smooth as i was hoping it to be no, no no it was good it was good i liked it uh the weapon in this movie chemical the character stanley goodspeed the hairstyle come over the top that's how i would describe it and the level of cage rage here's where we get it 7.5 out of 10 on the cage rage Richter scale that's what i would say this goes to I don't know if you would yeah, agree. Yeah, I,
1: def- I would definitely agree. He's got some great one-line anger moments, including mm-hmm. the, cut, the cut the chit-chat a-hole.
0: Yep, gotta and find has- me some rockets.
1: Yeah, it was legendary. So yeah, he definitely brings out the uh, cage rage, but it's in kind of a cool and controlled manner of a subject matter expert.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's he's all of us what we like to be on our day-to-day when we're sitting... You know, with our laptops open, writing the latest article or reading some news stories, you just you just want to be out there finding rockets. That's all we want to be doing. Totally. <laughs> uh, so let's let's run through the plot on this one. Uh, this one I think is a little bit more enjoyable uh, than next. This one is about an elite team of former U.S. Marines. They go out and steal fifteen rockets armed with deadly VX nerve agent gas, and they hold San Francisco hostage from their headquarters at one of the most famous prisons in the world, the island of Alcatraz, just right outside of San Francisco. Uh, you ever been to Alcatraz, Tristan?
1: I will admit that despite growing up in the Bay Area, I never made it to Alcatraz.
0: Well, you're not too far from there now, right?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I could, I could go, I could get up there in two hours at the moment.
0: Well, I was there when I was, let's see, maybe 13 or so, and, um, this type of experience was not what I went through, but it had you seen? Had you seen The
1: Rock when you went when you went there?
0: I hadn't seen The Rock. That was a little bit after this, but I had seen uh, Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood. My dad made me, had me see that movie a lot younger than I probably should have been. Uh, so in this movie, we have a, this team of mercenaries is led by a former U.S. war hero. That keeps stressing over and over again. He's a war hero played by Ed Harris, who wants money and recognition for soldiers who, under his command, had died in action performing suspect military missions for the U.S. government. And what ends up happening, mild-mannered FBI chemical weapons specialist and soon-to-be father, Stanley Goodspeed, uh, he and the only man who has ever broken out of Alcatraz, uh, a character whose name is John Mason, he's a 30-year black cell inmate and former British uh, SAS agent. They get together, they save the day. Uh, Mason and Goodspeed storm the prison, they take on some guards, they uh, look for some rockets, they get caught, they break out of their cells using Mason's old tricks that he used to get out of the prison. They destroy all of the rockets, and they bond over their love of prom queens and strong family values or connections to their family. Uh, Mason escapes from FBI custody with the help of Stanley Goodspeed, and Mason sends the Goodspeed family after they get married on a honeymoon tour of Kansas, a church in Kansas, where Mason hid all of this evidence why he's locked up by the government for the first place, pertaining to things like, you know, the JFK assassination and the alien landing at Roswell, which apparently, according to this movie, was a real thing. So I I want to see the sequel. We talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, I, so obviously, like most 90s kids, I have seen this movie multiple times over the years since it first came out in 1996. The first time I saw it actually has a special place for me. This was kind of one of these classic kind of moments uh, with, with one's father in which, you know, you're able to see an R-rated movie a little bit earlier than you should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the time I had some sort of uh, oral surgery. I think I was getting like my, my uh, wisdom teeth out or something. Uh, and I was, I was a bit young. I think I was, I don't know, maybe around 12, 11 or 12. And this was like the hot movie of of, of the year, and I remember uh, we picked it up from the video rental store back when you had VHS cassettes. Uh-huh. And I was able to watch this movie in kind of a uh, novocaine laughing gas stupor, and thought it was totally awesome.
0: Now, when they gave you the novocaine, did they take it in a syringe and put it directly into your heart, or how does that work? And is so it they, they do they stress in the movie that the only way to get medicine is to have it directed into your heart with a syringe?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, injecting Novocaine into one's gums isn't far off.
0: So, I mean, there's things
1: about this movie that are awesome if you're a teenager. I mean, it's got these classic Michael Bay fast cuts, which he really pioneered with movies like The Rock. Unfortunately, if you've kind of watched more recent Michael Bay movies, such as uh, that terrible movie about Benghazi, Mm -hmm. he's really taken the fast cut editing technique to like a whole new level. In fact, I remember sitting there with a stopwatch and I would click each time he did a fast cut and it was it's pretty insane but I mean that's a very entertaining and it was a kind of a novel way in the early 90s to shoot an action movie the other thing that's really awesome about the movie is the is the dialogue it's great yeah it's a lot of good lines the dialogue is is solid the zings the kind of like one-liners have aged remarkably well for the most part uh, and so that really kind of keeps the movie pretty engaging.
0: Some of the action scenes haven't aged very well. Mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know how you felt about that. I definitely skipped over the action scenes for some reason there's this there's like a mine shaft tunnel in Alcatraz oh, yeah yes. that, I, that I couldn't figure out where there's dr. Cox from Scrubs is, is trying to kill our characters and I, I don't one, I don't understand maybe there is a mine shaft in Alcatraz. I don't know but no I, I, I noted the same thing the set pieces.
1: The set pieces for the action scenes in this movie are, are like are kind of weird. I think there there was like three, there's three main big set pieces. You had the car chase through San Francisco,
0: which is great. I thought that was a good scene. You didn't like it.
1: Okay, um, it's a total non sequitur for the plot of the movie. It's like fair enough, now, fair enough. Like the fact that uh, Mason was able to get out of this like heavily guarded hotel room is absurd, and then he's just going to like he's literally going around San Francisco blowing things up. And, and like quite possibly killing people, sure. and then at the end of that whole scene, they're like, "Oh, it, it's all it's all good, man." It's like the whole thing is just like it was very weird, and they they were like clearly introducing elements just to like have big explosions, hmm. or or in one case the opposite of an explosion, having them like drive a Humvee through like a bunch of uh, jugs of water. Yeah, I was like, now there's a fire. Oh, now there's water. Like I don't know, the whole thing was like. Very weird. In fact, there were zero consequences at the end. It just, just made it seem like it was completely unnecessary.
0: We're just establishing how much of a smooth operator our, our characters are. <laughs> they, can, they can pick up sports cars and Hummers and just tear through. I guess you're right. Stuff.
1: I guess they needed to establish that Goodspeed had some sort of just intrinsic ability to be an operator because he's clearly just like a PhD in, ke- in chemical engineering or science. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't have, like he, he has no like field experience, but they're like, all right, well, if we stick him in this car chase and he kicks ass, then it'll be more convincing that he makes it through the whole movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Squaring off against like the most elite military forces in the world. The the other two set pieces, which were kind of hilarious was the flame gear shaft machine that mason like (laughs) mason like has to go through to like get into alcatraz i thought that was kind of a hilarious construct because the whole conceit of it was that it had been continuously operating since he was like for 30 years or something and they never changed they never changed anything about it like it wasn't even clear what that thing was doing like why were there these like flames and gears
0: yeah i mean what maybe it was at a very uh cold time in san francisco and they, they wanted to make yeah. sure everyone on the tour was had a good furnace going it doesn't make a lot of sense i've
1: never seen a giant gear steam room flame like flamethrower room it just yeah and then the, and then the third is the one that you mentioned it was like this like train tracks so that led into like a mine shaft with some sort of like zipliner thing that you could like put buckets on and like hide in like I, I felt like that was pretty
0: weird too. Well, it's, you know, it's in Alcatraz. I, I remember I, I did my tour of Alcatraz, and it definitely has some cool places. And you see some of these things in the movie, but a lot of it is this. This could have been taking place anywhere. Alcatraz was really not the the motivating factor for it, uh, except for I guess. So there's some fun scenes where they're both in inside the prison cells. There's a lighthouse scene that's kind of neat. I, I would I would disagree with you in one place where a thing hasn't aged that well. That line where he shoots a rocket off, and after queuing up the thing, of, do you like Elton John music? Oh, you're the do, rocket man? You're the rocket man. For some reason, there's so much setup for that that when he finally says it, it's you, you're the rocket man that hits a button, and the rocket goes off and it blows somebody yeah, up. Yeah, no,
1: no, the timing, yeah, the timing and execution is pretty subpar. That being said, our current president seems to favor this terminology. So I do think it has aged quite well. Just oh, yeah, it's coming of back of... around. That's a good point the geo the the current geo, geopolitical context
0: well maybe that's the reason why we're having this there's going to be a summit because kim jong-un is actually a Elton john fan
1: yeah definitely the 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 the, the final two things i liked before i i, I laced into this movie <laughs> the potus monologue that's like such a classic 90s potus monologue where the president's like these are the darkest hours mm-hmm. i've ever i've ever experienced in my life and, and, and like in at no point in the movie does the president ever appear except then to deliver mm-hmm. this powerful stirring monologue about how difficult it, it is to make what is obviously the rational decision. Also, the soundtrack, Hans Zimmer, crushing it early '90s, terrific, great. Work. I think I might, uh, I might, I might do some. I might do. Some, I, I love Hans Zimmer soundtracks for for doing work. It makes you feel like like you're doing something pretty epic. So I might cue up The Rock. The next time I'm doing some uh, research.
0: I do the same thing with the uh, Game of Thrones soundtrack. That's how it gets me going. (laughs) All right. So just to kind of circle
1: back. So I wanted to really like this movie upon rewatching it. And in fact, when I had to think about, did I want to watch Face Off or The Rock again? I was more excited to see The Rock. Mm -hmm. But when I rewatched it, a number of things jumped out to me. Uh, as kind of uh, in my older age uh and that are, i found are
0: these wmd stuff or are these are plot things
1: i had three main problems with this movie upon re- rewatching it
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh only one of them is related to the chemical weapons aspect of the movie which we which we can talk about but let me get the two non wmd plot issues out of the way okay so first i'm not really clear what this movie is about it seems to be about a a number of different things the first which is most problematic and actually kind of offensive to me upon re-watching this movie is that the central villain and villains of this movie seem to be motivated to hold san francisco hostage to draw attention to the plight of veterans and their benefits which is just a ludicrous plot. And Hmm. I found it to be kind of off-putting. They didn't really invest in why this uh, character, uh, this kind of decorated war hero, why he felt as though the stakes were worth potentially sacrificing uh, the very civilians that he had served his entire career to protect. Mm -hmm. That's like the central plot of the entire movie. To me, it wasn't, to me, set up in a convincing manner. That made it really problematic for me to enjoy. It just made it hard for me to enjoy the movie. I think when I was younger, I just kind of glossed over it. Michael Bay movies are never realistic. But in this instance, I Mm -hmm. felt this failure to really set up the primary motivation for the character was disturbing.
0: So I always see Michael Bay movies, when when the military is involved, he has this relationship with the U.S. military where... I think he's described in interviews as, I will make you look good. You give me the access to cool things. So in Transformers, you see uh, military jets. You think you see the, the gunship. And you actually let them run through what they would do from a gunship to shoot down at an enemy target. In this case, just happens to be uh, some kind of Decepticon robot. And he has this relationship where he often will make characters look as good as they possibly can. And he mocks more civilian characters. So there's this character a 33-year-old chief of staff, and you know he's a political person because he's wearing glasses. Michael Bay hates people with glasses for some reason all of his movies. <laughs> this political person says things like, oh, this this guy is terrible, this Ed Harris character, and then the military comes back to him and says, hey, you better show your respect. This is one of the most decorated war heroes of all time. And they keep having this contrast between what the civilian, how they treat the military, and then how the military treats the military. But at the in the end of the day, the military people in the room are still not allowing these benefits to take place. I guess they're, the story is blaming the civilians. Maybe it's the White House or whoever happens to be, it's the political people, it's the Democrats and the Republicans that aren't letting the benefits go to the, these military families, um, the people that Ed Harris led. But the movie is saying these people, like as you mentioned, are doing these awful things, including some of these people who they describe as mercenaries, former U.S. Marines. They're sadistically horrible. And they have the guy who says, I'm going to cut you, boy. There's the other one at the end of the movie who ends up biting down on the VX gas. They're awful people. And the movie has both this sense of the military heroes are heroes and don't disrespect them while at the same time, showing this other side. I can see where you're coming from.
1: They kind of reviewed Ed Harris's story at the beginning. The first three minutes of this movie, you have no idea what's going on, which is problematic in and of itself. But I think they kind of basically wasted the first five minutes— not doing a very good job setting up like why Ed Harris had been pushed to this point. He basically just he says it rather than showing it. He just say he says to his at the grave of his wife that like he's done everything he can, but it's not clear like why he then has to escalate from I don't know suing the US government to then like threatening to kill, you know, 70,000 civilians.
0: I think it's just cuz he didn't he didn't have a Twitter account or something that to, <laughs> to a re- media relationship. It seems like this is the kind of Pentagon paper story that the Washington Post would love to learn about.
1: Yeah, this becomes problematic later within the internal logic of the movie, which is related to threat credibility. I mean, maybe Michael Bay wasn't intending to do this. Maybe I'm over-reading it, but it's just what popped out to me upon upon rewatching this, which, which is just that this inattention to the plot leads one to con- infer that if the military isn't treated well, they have the capacity and willingness to essentially do something like this and i just think i'm like why would you construct a movie like that it just to me it, it's a very offensive message to put forward without actually getting into mm. okay well why like why exactly is this person violating like their core oath of service okay you can't just like start a movie saying like this guy is good but very bad it's like it just doesn't make any sense really
0: well at the end of the movie he admits that it was a bluff that he wasn't actually going to to follow through with this except he hires a bunch of mercenaries that apparently i'm not sure why they they they're willing to go through with all of this for for a million dollars yeah which is amazing to me because (laughs) i don't know i don't i don't i'm not an expert or pretend to be an expert on pensions and military benefits but it seems like one million dollars now versus like the rest of your pension over the course of your life if you're being paid it in retirements and benefits and all these things your gi bill doesn't seem like it is a, a good trade off, and not only that, it's a million dollars, and you're on the run for your le- the rest of your life. You have to live in places where you can't be extradited, and you're really going to hope that that country is not going to extradite you. I don't know. It is weird to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think the right way to do it would be the apocalypse now method, which is you start from the assumption that the military officer has suffered some sort of incident. And then most of the movie is set up trying to explore what happened. Hmm. I mean, obviously that's not that's a completely different plot than The Rock, but I mean, that movie tries to unpack why a military officer is doing something. If Ed Harris was never really going to kill civilians, which he clearly apparently wasn't, then. That would have been something really interesting for him to, for, for the movie to explore much earlier, but it, of course it would have essentially uh, neutralized the entire stakes of the movie. So, I mean, Ed Harris says, at, towards the end, he says... This mission
2: was based on the threat of force. I'm not about to kill 80,000 innocent people. Do you think I'm out of my mind? We bluffed. They called it. The mission's over.
1: I mean, that's actually kind of an interesting idea, like unpacking that logic a bit more and unpacking like why, like how Ed Harris thought this was going to play out, I think would have been pretty interesting, but it wouldn't have fit well into any kind of, so I don't, I think they just kind of pushed it to the end. And then they're like, all right, this guy, he was was the good guy all along. He wasn't going to do it. And there's some bad Elements around him that are motivated by a million dollars for whatever reason,
0: which still doesn't make sense. But he's still re- he still recruited them. I mean, there, there's this idea that he's this great leader, but he goes about maybe it's the only people that he could get to do this mission. But he recruits people. If he's going to bluff, he needs to have a better ability to like control the launching system so that someone else just can't launch on their own. You know, he has to issue a code or some kind of a, an agreement. I mean, if he th- thinks that it's going to be a bluff. You can't basically pre-authorize or pre-delegate the ability for this launch in the hands of these crazy mercenaries who apparently don't share that same mission and didn't even know about the bluff from the beginning.
1: I mean, I realize realized that I'm being unfair to it. It's really more about the relationship between Nick Cage and Sean Connery. and Which is pretty great. Which is pretty great. Yeah. I mean, not going to lie. That's probably, that really is what carries the movie. So to focus on like this kind of background plot is probably unfair to the movie. But that being said, just, I, I it just it really irked me and and actually it turned a movie that I was excited to watch into a movie that I was like mm-hmm. kind of disturbed by just because and it made me more angry at Michael Bay. My, Michael Michael <laughs> Michael Bay he's produced some pretty terrible movies over the last decade um, from his high water mark of the '90s and this just kind of like really made me pissed off about Michael Bay. That leads to the third big problem which has nothing to do with WMD which is that and this is just a, a quick aside. A lot of the characters that are not Nick Cage, Sean Connery, or mm-hmm. Ed Harris, or the guy from Scrubs in Office Space, <laughs> a lot of those other characters are very one-dimensional. Mm. In particular, the girlfriend-fiancé character is just the definition of a kind of female stereotype at the time. She wants to get married, she wants to have kids, she just wants to be with him um it it was just like it was kind of galling to see all of the minorities that are in the movie as well just kind of say these things that are like sort of racist
0: well there's even a scene where sean connery who is you know in real life is scottish we have no reason to believe that he's not scottish yeah you can be scottish and still work for the british sas there's this scene where the one of the mercenaries says my dad was irish i hate you british person and I think I just want Sean Connery to be like, hey, there's no reason for mess to not be on the same <laughs> side here. Yeah. So maybe this these are the kind of things that aren't really delicately handled. And you have your frustrations you saw plot-wise. What I got about by watching this movie with a more focused eye on the accuracy questions of the weapon, the VX gas, because I'm not a, a chemical weapons person I had to, actually had to rely a lot on some of my colleagues at work who are uh, more experts on VX gas and, and chemical weapons. When I looked at it that way, here's what got me going. Here's what makes me want to kind of pull my hair out. We, we hear a lot in the news about VX gas. There supposedly VX gas, some version of it was what was used to assassinate Kim Jong-un's brother in Malaysia at an airport. Right. yeah. Yep, you hear a lot about VX gas starting to be used, and it's some pretty nasty stuff. Here's how the movie describes it. In the movie... Really elegant string of Pearl's configuration. Unfortunately, incredibly unstable.
2: And what exactly does this stuff do? If the rocket renders it aerosol, it can take out the entire city of people. Really? And what happens if you drop one? Happily, it'll just wipe out you and me. Oh. It's a cholinesterase inhibitor. It stops the brain from sending nerve messages down the spinal cord within 30 seconds. Any epidermal exposure or inhalation, and you'll know twinge at the small of your back as the poison seizes your nervous system. Do not move that! Your muscles freeze. You can't breathe. You spasm so hard you break your own back and spit your guts out. But that's after your skin melts off. Oh my God. Well, I
0: think we'd like God on our side at the moment, don't you? 15... Missiles loaded with VX gas are stolen from a naval weapons storage depot. And the VX gas is arranged in this string of pearls configuration where they're like little glass pearls and they're, they're like glowing green. And they're all arranged in like four strings of pearls inside the missile. They say in the movie sixty to 70,000 deaths can happen with a single rocket. A teaspoon of VX on the ground can be lethal up to 100 feet in the air, eight blocks. Uh, so it's pretty nasty stuff. They talk about why the only way you can get rid of it is you have to use thermite plasma, which I'm, I'm not even 100% sure what that is, uh, and that's how they were going to destroy uh, the chemical weapons at the end of the movie. How it's described in visually is when the Mercs are trying to steal it at the beginning, there's an accident, one of the VX gas balls falls off and breaks, and you see this nasty scene of uh, one of the Merc scenarios gets sealed off and... You see their skin start to bubble. They have breathing problems. It's it's some pretty horrible horrible way of dying. But really, none of that has any connection except how nasty this stuff is to real life. So this is what yeah
1: I... yeah. My wife, uh, when that guy died with the bubbling skin and everything, my wife turned to me and she said, "Is that is that really what it does?" <laughs> and I'm not a chem, I'm not a chem weapons guy either. To be clear, but anyone who has seen the videos of civilians in Syria who mm-hmm. suffer uh, nerve gas attacks knows that, yeah, that is not how these agents work. It's a horrible way to die. And in fact, if you watch these videos, um, it, they're very disturbing. And, and in many ways, I, I felt like Michael Bay could have done a service mm-hmm. by actually kind of trying to show the actual accurate effects. But instead, they decided they needed to really drum it up, Right. Right. Mixed between a nerve agent and uh, I think it'd probably be a blister, blis- a blistering agent. Something
0: like, like mustard gas or... just
1: just for the visual effect. And Michael Bay could have conveyed the, the deadly nature of these weapons without having to go over the top.
0: Yeah, you would you would think so, it, uh, so that everyone's on the same page. So uh, what I drew a lot of this stuff from, there's this great book that I'll recommend at the end of the podcast written by the, the late WMD chemical weapons expert, Jonathan Tucker. Uh, it's a great book on the history of chemical weapons. And in, in this book, it describes kind of why these things came about and, and how they were used and weaponized, and then ultimately how, for many countries, they were eliminated. VX stands for Venomous Agent X in the 1950s, U.S. Army chemical, uh, the chemical center synthesized about 50 different types of nerve agents. So, you know, things like VE, VG, VM, all these different code names. And finally, VX was selected because it had a couple different combinations of what the necessity of the military identified for what they wanted in a, in a, in a nerve agent. Things like toxicity, stability in storage, persistence on the battlefield. When you drop it, how long does it stay? and the ease of manufacture, how quickly can you make it uh, so it's not too complex. And the way VX gas works is it inhibits an enzyme, and I'm I'm gonna mispronounce this, cholinesterase. It's an enzyme, if there's too much of this enzyme, it results in the body's overstimulation of glands and it thinks that your various uh, signals being sent to your muscles, for example, it's telling your muscles constrict over and over and over again. Your blood vessels will dilate, your heart rate will slow, your lungs will constrict, and ultimately you can't breathe anymore because your diaphragm and other muscles are constricted. Uh, Usually that's the visual angle, the videos that you were talking about with nerve agents, that's kind of the way it tends to go. Um, And then visually what it looks like in real life, VX is odorless, it's a liquid, its density is slightly greater than that of water, Uh, its consistency is about like 30 weight motor oil, um, is how it's described by Jonathan Tucker. And the color isn't green. It's not bright green. It's clear to amber depending on how pure it is. And it's definitely not stored in a string of pearls configuration. Usually it's two inert gases that when they get mixed together as part of the detonation, then it creates some pretty nasty stuff. It will be disseminated as an airborne mist or a coarse spray of droplets that cling to things like clothing, weapons, uh, buildings, vegetation, things like that and it is pretty nasty stuff it lasts up to 3 weeks once you once you detonate it so i don't think those alcatraz tours are going to start up anytime soon and i think one of the things i learned that was fascinating was that during the vietnam war one of the reasons why vx gas was started to not be made as much anymore the us military ran out of artillery shells to put the vx gas into They didn't have any shells left because they needed them for conventional purposes during the war. They even actually moved VX gas out of these artillery shells that weren't being used in the Vietnam War to make room for these conventional uh, material. And it wasn't Mm. until – yeah, I think that's a fascinating little little tidbit. And it wasn't until the mid-'90s, late-'90s, there's this process of trying to eliminate – chemical weapons we we know it as the chemical weapons convention the CWC the US had signed the CWC but not ratified it by the time the rock was written and came out and it, it entered into a force in 1997 in April and the US ratified it a few days before the treaty end up happening which committed the US to stopping production of VX gas and destroy what it had this is amazing 31,000 tons of these chemical weapons over 10 years so that's kind of where where we see the movie taking place so it makes sense that this vx gas was out there if you tried to do the movie today you couldn't do it based on the u.s stockpile because we but you know it took longer than 10 years but we don't have any more of this vx gas apparently so that's the context that's what real life is i'm going to do a quick series of nitpicks because this this is weird why they keep choosing these decisions in the movie when they could have went a different direction I think the first one is, the first scene in the movie, why is it at a naval weapons depot? Because these things aren't stored at naval weapons depot. They were never stored by the Navy. They're an RB unit. There were eight army storage depots because the army were to be the ones to actually deploy these things. Most of these things were stored at the actual facility and they were destroyed later at these facilities because you weren't allowed to move VX gas and other things across state lines. And there's eight different storage locations, but they were never... In any sort of uh, naval depot. And I think the only reason they did that was because they wanted the U.S. Marines to be the bad guys. And the U.S. Marines could conceivably break into a naval facility easier than they could break into an army facility. I think that's the only reason they changed where these things are stored. But not only that, I would say they get into, as we mentioned earlier... pretty inaccurate depiction of VX gas and how it works. They combined the nerve agent stuff, which is the violent muscle spasms and the difficulty breathing with the blister agents, the bubbling skin. It's a fascinating thing that VX gas tends to be used more as an area denial weapon. It's not, it tend not to be used on these kind of direct civilian populations until you have some pretty bad actors that use these things like in in Iran and Iraq and, and in Syria. But there's reasons why I think they did this, and I I looked at a little bit of research, and I kind of came across what the screenwriter, uh, David Weisberg, why he he co-wrote The Rock and why he made some of these decisions. And it's also a fascinating story here about the Iraq War, uh, the most recent one, the lead up to that. So as we know, there was largely an argument made that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and that's why we went in. In 2003, because we had to stop uh, weapons of mass destruction from being used and they had these programs. And in the lead up to that, an informant told a British Secret Intelligence Service official that Saddam Hussein was making VX nerve agent and other types of chemical weapons. And the informant described in great detail chemical weapon agents and how they were being stored. Now, the problem that we learned, uh, and it was revealed in a 2016 report called the Iraq Inquiry or the the Chilcot Report, was that the informant mentioned things like string of pearls configuration about what the VX (laughs) gas was being used. What? Things not typically used in chemical munitions. And here's the quote from the report. A popular movie, The Rock, uh, inaccurately depicted nerve agents being carried in glass beads or spheres. So whoever was this informant was essentially quoting the movie The Rock and the screenwriters, uh, he thought it was crazy because uh, David Weisberg, who wrote this, he said, it's amazing that no one in the poison gas community, they would all re- immediately recognize that this was total BS, uh, such obvious BS, but no one told anyone else. And this information never made it all the way to Tony Blair uh, before this decision to go to war was made, I think.
1: So, so The Rock actually was responsible for spreading disinformation?
0: Yeah, I guess so.
1: One of the interesting things about these movies is the impact they had on popular conception of various WMD threats. It's poor terminology. I hate using it. but And that's kind of what these movies are doing, is that they're really making it seem as though there are these weapon capabilities that are out there that are going to have really horrific consequences. It kind of really stoked a certain fear, especially in the 90s when you're kind of coming off the tail end of the Cold War, which is very much kind of a thermonuclear competition, Mm -hmm. uh, an existential fear. Now you're dealing more with this, it's not existential, it's more everything's fine, except for the fact that non-state actors of various sorts could get access to these really horrific platforms.
0: Art imitates life, and then life is influenced by art. I would say that you hope that the people who are the technical experts working in government don't rely on on media in terms of uh, movies and things to guide their discussions. But I think you can see political leaders who maybe aren't interested in knowing the technical basis for things, they, they go by gut instinct. And sometimes gut instinct is drawn from your relationship with people, it's drawn with your relationship in business or in life or your campaign. You know, I, I have a gut feeling about this and this is the way to go. This, this makes common sense to me. Some of that also comes from your interpretation of, of film and movies. People watch 24 which I enjoyed that television program, and then interpret from there the utility of torture. And I, I think the reason why the screenwriter did this, and I, th- I think this is really interesting, is is Weisberg's his stepfather was, was Jeffrey Kemp, who worked for Reagan and Bush Sr. and worked on policy issues. So there was this funny connection that the father, the stepfather, J- Jeff Kemp, got uh, the screenwriter in connection with chemical weapon experts, and they told him, here's ex- accurately what VX gas does. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you use it. But the screenwriter said it needed more visuals, something to make them interesting, uh, make it more of an interesting plot device. And here's what he said, the screenwriter, unfortunately, chemical weapons are very boring because essentially they're two chamber cells with odorless gases being mixed together. There's no way to do that realistically on the screen without any sort of excitement. Uh, in real life, it would be invisible and boring as per usual. So we invented the String of Pearls approach to have these little globes with green uh, green gases in them to give a more interesting visual interest to create Jeopardy. So I understand that from a screenwriting standpoint to take poetic license. No,
1: absolutely. I I understand, I understand why they did it. And especially for a movie like The Rock at the time it was made – it's more about what do the non-experts think exactly. about, about this movie? What does the public think? The, the visual flair they gave to it was certainly interesting and horrifying, but it's almost from kind of a, in many ways, it's, it's a little campy, if, if you will. Hmm. I'm trying to think of movies in which the violence is not over the top or glorified, but because of how realistic it is, it's even more deeply disturbing. I think at the same time, there's space for movies that accurately depict VX, for example, and the effects that would had.
0: Well, I think you could do a movie like this. You just couldn't make a Michael Bay movie. Do you know what I mean? Like you could do a movie about VX gas. It just couldn't be the type of movie that Michael Bay maybe wanted to direct the type of points that he wanted to hit the beats he wanted to, to follow on. Um, but it's not just VX gas. There's also this basic, uh, running myth about in the movie, uh, Nick Cage is given a scene at the beginning where he's trying to disarm some kind of a, a, a terrorist bomb or a, a single package bomb that has some sort of chemical weapon in it. All of his uh, bosses, I guess, tell him, you need to inject yourself with this antidote in the in the heart. Like, physically take this through yeah. your ribcage into your heart and then continue to work on the bomb. Well, take the atropine
2: now. <laughs> the atrophy, you would. Inject it in your heart before your suit melts. Get that away from me. Come on, they'll fix it, for Christ's sake! Take the entropy now, Stan, for Christ's sake! Poison's mixing. Is that shoot, melt? If you die, we all die! Inject your heart and then defuse the bomb! How big is this? You want me to stick this into my heart?
0: Are you nuts? And he hates needles, that's the big thing that he is. He hates needles, including shooting things into your heart. And at the end of the movie, he does that because he's affected by the VX gas and he he's trying to survive. There's this perception. You also add Pulp Fiction about having the adrenaline jabbed into your heart. Right. There's no reason for that to ever take place. It's never advised to inject anything in your heart. If you stab yourself in the heart with a needle, you have a hole in your heart and you bleed to death. That is the most basic thing. And especially with VX Gas, VX Gas has an antidote that they developed over a number of years in testing on things like uh, electric eels, on mice. They figured out a way to at least nullify the effect of, of nerve agents. And what you do is you inject it into your thigh or your hip, not into your heart. It's Not only is it better to inject the chemical for it to work, but also injecting things into your heart when you're in the in the military, it's not a good thing because you're, you're done. You can't really continue to work uh, if you're exposed to these right. things. Uh, not only that, it incapacitates you. It's a type of thing that if you stab yourself with this and you're injected with these chemicals... It, you need to recover for a while you're no position to uh, disarm any sort of bomb or anything like that and if you take them before you're affected by a nerve agent it will kill you it's meant to counteract effects that are hurting your nerve systems if you just put that into it it doesn't get you to zero it gets you to the you know it makes it go the other way which is pretty bad in real life there's these things that aren't needles they're well they're not syringes they're auto injectors you put them into you your leg and it will bring pressure that causes them immediately to get injected because it turns out most people in the military because they're real people they don't like to inject things into their body it's a pretty quick way of doing this and in the movie they describe it as i believe it's they just call it uh, atropine in the film as something that will be able to work it's actually for vx gas a combination of and i'm saying this reading this off of a book i don't really understand it's but it's a combination of atropine, which blocks receptors in the body and counteracts the physiological effects of VX, with this other thing called PAM, which is a chemical that helps to restore enzyme activity. And if you combine those two things, it will actually raise the lethal dose of VX tenfold, meaning you have to be exposed mm. to 10 times the normal amount for it to kill you. Right. It's injected into your thigh, it's not injected into your heart. I don't know why they needed to add that plot element to it. Because it's badass, that's why. <laughs> You could have just made him afraid of needles. I think that would have worked out just fine.
1: No, man, because then they they wouldn't have that scene at the end where he stabs it in his heart, like kind of passes out for a little bit, wakes up from his nodded off, and then he stumbles out and lights the green flares in like an epic, yeah, an epic conclusion. Just to pick up on the conclusion of the movie, there's a few uh, a few issues I had. So first. Special Forces team ropes him in to coming with them at the very beginning uh, as he's explaining how to disarm this missile system by saying that it's too complicated and he need he's the only one who can do it, so he needs to come with them, despite having literally no training, apparently, at all. Well, he anything. makes it
0: sound like it's this really complicated series of things you right. need to do to disarm the Which weapon and secure well the VX. Which it may well be, but in the movie, it was super simple.
1: It was like just take out, just, like, unscrew some sort of panel, which is pretty easy to communicate, uh, remove the stupid green balls <laughs> without dropping them, uh, pull out the guidance chip, which is literally just a chip, like, it's kind of like a SIM card on your phone. It's
0: the only microchip in the entire missile.
1: Yeah, it, it and then, like, smash it. And, I, I mean, I thought at the beginning, I thought he was going to go with them, to, to do something, like, more elaborate. Like, mm. I don't know, like, dispose of the chemical weapons. I'm not really sure what I thought he was going to do. If you note at the very beginning, when they're going in on the mission, this is, like, real cutting-edge, over-the-horizon technology for 1990s, but everyone had these cameras. Remember? So that oh, they yeah. the, the Ops Center could, like, watch them on the mission, um, which I'm sure at the time they thought was, like, really cool. So, I mean, if that's all you needed to do... Goodspeed could have just stayed in the ops center, watched them via the cameras, and told them over the radio what to do.
0: Just keep saying it over and over again. So the big thing is here is just not to drop it. Like, don't drop it. Don't play catch with this. Just drop it. Just don't drop it over and over yeah, again. Yeah, like
1: why? Why would I drop it, man?
0: <laughs> you know, he okay. Yes, the FBI. They're in, they're involved. It makes sense why they would be involved in this in this operation. But there are teams of people who are trained in the military, with military training as well, to yeah. handle these things. There's an army technical ex- escorts units that handle these things. There's a whole school that disarms nuclear weapons and other material, called the Navy Bomb Disposal Unit. <laughs> it's weird. But... Absolutely. Yeah, and
1: it was it was, it was was super weird at the end when, like, he's the only one, Him and Sean Connery are the only two people left alive. The FBI guy comes up. He's like, congratulations, Dr. Goodspeed. And it's like wait, so I can understand that Sean Connery might still be alive, given his training, mm-hmm. but he's a little old, so alright, you know, but I'll, I'll give it to him, he's still wily, despite being, like, in, you know, solitary confinement for 30 years, he he made it. He did his push-ups. Yeah, he, he made it, but Goodspeed, it's like, really? This guy was able to overcome all odds that were, like, heavily stacked against him? He He engages with these military guys on, like, several instances, and I'm like, Dude, you have a this guy has a similar background to me in terms of just being a nerd. Uh-huh. And I'm like, you would be out and done like <laughs> immediately. Like, there's no way you're surviving that, man.
0: So I'll I'll say this. I'll give the movie the benefit of the doubt. I think what it was was he knew his 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 fiance his soon to be fiance was in San Francisco, so he wanted to do it oh for her. God. He knew he's about to be a father, so he wants to make sure that he can see his child. But here's where this all breaks down: is the movie ends because Goodspeed goes on this honeymoon tour to this church in Kansas where Sean Connery told him that there's this microfilm with all the details of things like the JFK assassination and the Roswell alien landing, and they go and get this film. Now, does Goodspeed not know the reason why Sean Connery was put in prison for like three decades was because he had this information? I don't know what the future of the Goodspeed family will look like. Are they going to be on the run from the FBI? Are they going to do anything with this information, or is it just going to be like a fun? Hey, we know this, but no one else needs to know. Is he going to release it to the press? Is he going to? I don't know what it is. Is he going to have to go on the run for the rest of his life because he now knows secrets, government secrets that?
1: Tim, I think, I think, I think you're asking questions in kind of a contemporary environment in which, you know, there have been leaks of information and. Um, you know, the various repercussions thereof. But, you know, you got to remember, this is like the mid-90s when like the (laughs) X-Files were big, conspiracy theories about aliens were big, which they just present as like fact in the movie. Uh In that context, I think it was very in vogue to be a holder of secret government data about aliens or whatever. I mean, yeah, I think it fits perfectly with like the the general kind of cultural environment of Mm. the mid-90s.
0: Well, I just know Mark Felt, the guy who was actually deep throat and released information about Watergate. I mean, he did not announce that he was this person until he was on death's door, you know, decades later. Um, Yeah. I just think I don't know what future it's going to be like for the Goodspeed family. I'm curious what.
1: Well, if he survived the rock, um, I'm sure he'll be okay. apparently.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, hopefully he doesn't have to face off against the FBI again in the future. Oh wait, that's the next movie we're going to talk about. Let's get into that. Singer, up, oh, face off. Uh, the weapon, biological. The character, well, there's two. He plays two characters: Caster Troy and or Sean Archer. Caster Troy, I think, is the bad guy. Great names. Yeah, and Sean Archer is is the character also played by uh, John Travolta. And I would say the hairstyle for this movie, short fuse. It's like a like a crop cut. Um, yeah. His cage rage is too high, which is, I would say, is nine out of ten for this movie. And you can't, if he has too much hair, the cage rage is contained.
1: Oh, yeah, no, this is, this is like really peak Nicolas Cage, classic rage moments. Yeah, this is, I think, Nick Cage at probably his finest in the 90s outside of leaving Las Vegas.
0: Well, so this was directed by John Wu, who a lot of people know. Yeah, he's got some great action movies like Hard Boiled. Um, he's got uh, tropes like double guns, constantly double guns jumping around. A lot of Mexican standoffs, a lot of doves flying off, kind of out of nowhere. You want to run through this one real quick about kind of what you, how you see the plot? Because I actually haven't seen this movie for a while. Uh, I figure I ran ran through the plot in my head, and I thought I got it, um, but maybe you've seen it more recently than I have.
1: I've seen this movie repeatedly over the years. I'll read the plot summary just from IMDb just to get us going. So in order to foil an extortion plot, an FBI agent, I believe this is Sean Archer, undergoes a facial transplant surgery and assumes the identity and physical appearance of a terrorist, that would be Castro Troy, but the plan turns from bad to worse when the same terrorist impersonates the FBI agent. So that's the kind of brief once over. I think most people are familiar with the intimate details of Face Off, which involves some sort of futuristic technology, whereby (laughs) they're able to... I don't know. Essentially, take like take the actual not only the actual face of uh, Nicholas Cage and, try and and like sw- and and swap it, mm-hmm. but somehow also change their like body morph- morphology and everything else. Yep. Add They'll, weight,
0: add height. Yeah, change their voice. The original script. It took place in the future. And then they said, you know what? We want this to be a little more relatable. So they brought it back to present time.
1: Yeah, so there was an early kind of 3D printer uh, that's printing stuff in the movie, like like tissue. Another point from IMDb, this is what they refer to this as, a special operation doctor that can cut off people's faces and place a person's face onto another person. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, they they, they kind of try and dress it up with like, I don't know, some pseudoscience in the mm-hmm. movie, but it's really just a, it's 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 an awesome plot device, really.
0: I mean, the re- I guess the reason why they do this in the first place is because Caster Troy's brother, they have him in custody, and right. he has a, a literal floppy drive, like a little three-by-five <laughs> floppy disk. I thought it
1: was a zip disk. I thought it was like a zip disk. Do, do you remember zip disk?
0: Yeah, well, it looks, I mean, it looks like a, like a floppy disk. not the Not the huge ones that actually are floppy, but kind of the smaller ones that look like the icon... When you go yeah. To save something in Word, right? Th- was it was it a little bit bigger than that? Was it like a jacket. Well, so there or...
1: there was this uh, there was this portable medium called a zip drive. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but you were definitely like a cool nerd if you <laughs> yeah. had a zip drive. It essentially it was kind of it, it it was a it looked similar to a three by five, except it was thicker, oh, okay, and more stout, and it allowed you to save a, a lot more data. And by a lot more data, it, it was probably like you know, like 10 megabytes or something.
0: There's schematics for some kind of bomb.
2: Recovered from the jet wreckage found in Pollock's Troy's briefcase. Porcelain casing, thermal cloak, nerve gas and biological payload.
0: It's enough to flatten the square mile. Then depending on the
2: prevailing winds, the fallout will be a tad worse than Gulf War syndrome. Biblical, a biblical
0: plague that LA. Like, uh, where is, where is Plux Troy? Some sort of bomb, what they describe as a combination nerve agent and biological weapon, enough explosives yeah. to level a square mile, and it's described by one of the Sean Archer's bosses as nasty enough that it would make the Gulf War syndrome seem like child's play. So that's really the only description we have of what this bioweapon nerve agent combination does. You think that could fit all that information? Could it fit on a a zip drive? Well, having just looked
1: up my good old buddy, the zip drive, it was what was referred to as a super floppy, (laughs) which filled, according to Wikipedia, a niche market. So AKA super nerds. Oh, no, zip zip drives were awesome. Um, So they had capacities of 100 megabytes, 250 megabytes, and then... The final version, seven hundred and fifty megabytes, which that's as crazy. you know is the capacity of a CD.
0: <laughs> so on this information, there's this there's this weapon thing, and they're wondering whether or not this is a real bomb or is this something that they just created. And Castro Troy's brother says he will only give it up if he's talking to his brother, and that's why John Travolta's character decides to do the old face swap. But what I don't understand is why did they put. The face onto the bad guy, the good guy's face onto the bad guy. Was there, there's something I'm not remembering about this. Like, why did they switch the bodies? Why didn't they just put John Archer's face in storage? So, Castor Troy loses
1: this kind of epic chase and then gunfight at the very beginning of the movie, and that culminates with uh, John Travolta uh, basically hitting some sort of jet engine that's mm-hmm. just sitting in a room. And it like throws him into a wall and knocks him unconscious, puts him in a coma. They've got uh, Castor Troy unconscious. They then take his face off, put it on John Travolta's. They put John Travolta's face off to the side, and they're like, "All right, when you're done with your mission, uh, we will uh, take this back." For for whatever reason, too, like they kept this super secret. Like I don't think it needed to be that secret, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it seemed like it'd be pretty good. It
1: needed to be secret from anyone that would have contact with his brother in a maximum security prison. So like, yeah, I think it could have been more than like the one or two people that, that that they isolated it to. So their massive error, when this is, of course, this had to happen, or else the movie wouldn't wouldn't happen at all. Was that they thought Pastor Troy was just out for the count, right? Mm-hmm. But he wakes up. And for whatever reason, he's able to like get out of his restraints without a face. He has no face, so he, <laughs> he wakes up with no face. He calls his like buddy, and he's like, "Hey man, um, I've got no face. <laughs> come, come get <give> me out <laughs> of a jam." Which, yeah, I mean, he's got a solid a solid buddy would always help somebody out, help help out a friend without a face,
0: help him help him not lose face.
1: His buddies show up and. Uh, they then track down the surgeon who puts John Travolta's face on his. And then also they track down the two know, the FBI agents that know about the whole transfer. Mm-hmm. So, And then they kill them. They kill everybody. They kill the only three people that knew about the whole thing, get rid of all the evidence, and that's the entire like setup for the movie. So what happens is that, oh man, this is kind of hard to describe because <laughs> Archer, who is in Nick Cage's body, right? So yep. Nick Cage is now the good guy. Uh, he is in jail, right? He actually does find out the location of this, this chem bio super mm-hmm. weapon, which is in the convention center. That's, they wanted to know where it was. They, I don't think
0: they knew where it was, right? Right. They that, they asked the brother, and they try to find out where it was. But yeah. They're, yeah. So he
1: tells them where it is. And then immediately, like a great covert operative, Nick Cage is like, I'm done. Thanks a lot. He just blows his cover right then and there, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking he's going to get out. What he doesn't know is that uh, Caster Troy has just pulled this whole kind of, you know, deception move and erased all the evidence. And he's still in jail now. You know, the John Travolta character, who is actually Caster Troy, is able to keep the good guy in jail, mm-hmm. and he does, in fact, go and. Himself disarm the bomb because not only does he know where the bomb is, of course, because he planted it, but he knows how to like disarm it.
0: Yeah, I think he pushes like a button and then just kind of that's it.
1: He puts in his code and he, he does some cool like uh, the Travolta character takes on some cool like Nick Cage type flair and like it's it's all fun and games. But I guess I guess I uh, guess but I guess I guess to like one of the the fundamental points uh, with this movie, which is that. It's not really about the chem bio weapon. If The Rock did a poor job setting up the motive for why these former military officers were holding civilians hostage, Mm -hmm. Face Off doesn't even really bother. And that's okay because Nick Cage is just set up as this kind of renegade terrorist for hire. Kind of like Carlos the Jackal. They're kind of modeling him after Carlos the Jackal as Mm a... As an assassin terrorist for hire, it just seemed like the level he was going to... I could understand an assassin being for hire, but like a mass terrorist? That's kind of... That's some next level. To be motivated by money to basically cam bio a whole city seems a little far-fetched.
0: Just have a conventional bomb too. Why need to make it a... This weird combination of nerve agent and in really nasty bio weapon stuff I never really understood.
1: Totally unnecessary, like absolutely unnecessary.
0: Before we rant about the bio weapon inaccuracies, so the movie ends right as eventually they have a face off, which is the name of the movie. They they have a face off and and then they switch back at the end after this epic shootout. It's hard to describe, but ultimately,
1: yeah, I feel like I feel like us having a discussion about like the like. The Different face off twist is probably pretty pretty yeah. difficult for anyone to blow up,
0: but it's weird at the end. Not only do does Sean Travolta's character Sean Archer get his face back and he gets back into it, but they decide, Yeah, you know, why don't you add an extra 20 or 30 pounds so that when he ends up going back to his family? Wait, dude, does he actually ask? I mean, he ends up looking like that at the end of the movie. <laughs> fair I know, enough. I fair just enough. would have been like, Why don't, why don't I earned 30 pounds, the Nick Cage off. physique right exactly um but so this is you meant you already kind of keyed this up what i think is great is i think this is probably one of the most lazy uses of weapons of mass destruction as a plot device in any movie that i've ever seen uh it's this weird combination of nerve agent and bioweapon it's never explained or rationalized why it should work that way it's just it's most core basic savage primitive nature some sort of macguffin to motivate characters I've never seen a combination of nerve agents and bioweapons being used at the same time in any sort of plot device or in real life equivalents. Usually these have vastly different missions, but maybe in the the terrorist realm, it's just something that's pretty bad. Um, But what gets me is bioweapons can't be dispersed by exploding them with chemical weapons to the degree that they describe in the movie. And it will not just disperse it, it will literally catch it on fire and melt it. Usually bioweapons are dispersed as fine particles in the air, released into water supplies, released in aerosol form. When you blow it up with a, enough explosives to level a square mile, I would say it would be a pretty inefficient way of using this. And I would say the same thing with, with the nerve agent. So I don't really understand. Maybe it's not the point. Maybe there never was a real nerve agent or bioweapon and that was just part of a long con plan. I don't know. I never could figure out whether it was a a, a bluff or not. Did it seem like there was a real chemical bioweapon? Would you, as how you would interpret that? They needed something that would raise the stakes
1: super high to drive John Travolta to want to undergo this operation, right?
0: Right. I
1: think think if it was just a tailored assassination plot, it's not great, but is it worth literally transforming your entire body uh, to stop? Would be to undergo this sort of crazy-ass plan and the failure to do so would result in like catastrophic loss of life which
0: which is not what what well, not how they describe it though they describe it oh, as you know. worse than gulf war syndrome what does that even mean so here here's how i see this and this is really not to take away anything from the people who really suffer from this very mysterious illness but it's a much lower impact than say millions dead from vx or anthrax or something like that Gulf War Syndrome, and this is how it's described in in medical journals and medical circles. It's a cluster of medically unexplained chronic symptoms, fatigue, headaches, joint pain, indigestion, insomnia, dizziness, respiratory disorders, and memory problems. And then there's some clusters of lethal uh, tumors, but it's a much lower level compared to some of these other symptoms. And the causes are really uncertain. There's different explanations. People say it was a side effect from the use of depleted uranium rounds in the Gulf War. It was uh, attacks by or de- accidental detonations of sarin gas stockpiles, exposure to, pe- to pesticides or burning open pit oil wells or open pit fires, overzealous vaccinations gets described as one of the reasons. Or some people just say it's a advanced version of PTSD or some kind of psychological factor. Gulf War Syndrome isn't everyone that was involved in the Gulf War passing away due to VX gas or some kind of right. other illness, which is why I think Gulf War Syndrome in 1990, when did this come out, 97, uh, was just in the buzzword. People knew about it. They heard yeah, about it, was it in just, the Yeah, it was just
1: sloppy writing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something people recognize, and they're like, oh, I know that. But if they read about what it was, gosh, really not the thing you worry about when a VX gas or some sort of bioweapon goes off. You have other concerns.
1: Here's my hypothesis. This gets back to what you just said about originally this movie was supposed to be set in the future. hmm I think they didn't change this one aspect. So in the future, anything could be possible, man. <laughs> you could have a chem bio agent, I guess. <laughs> Who <Yeah>. knows? <laughs> Who knows? You know, whatever. Uh, so-
0: it, maybe it was like uh, some sort of hallucinogen that would cause people to freak out and make their and kill their neighbors or something uh, which I think is the plot of an upcoming bioweapon nick cage movie called I think it's mom and dad or dad and mom maybe that's what it could have been but then when they brought it back to the past there was like oh, all right, fine we'll just we'll call it a bio nerve agent the people will eat that up
1: I think probably Occam's razor like the simplest explanation is that this movie is arguably I think one of the Best movies of the four that we were discussing. Absolutely, arguably one of Nick Cage's best action movies of all time, thanks not only to the kind of deft touch of of Wu and some of the really interesting stylistic moves, which kind of in retrospect can kind of seem a bit campy, but they were pretty, they're they're still pretty cool and they were pretty revolutionary and pushed the field forward at the time. But I think I think the simplest explanation is: look, a bio weapon sounds cool. Yeah. It's a cool it's a cool movie. They had a lot of interesting touches. That kind of Supermax prison in the middle of nowhere, that's a, such a super badass set piece. Something like a Kambaya weapon, it doesn't make any sense really from kind of a, yeah. a capability, strategy perspective that the realm that we deal in, but like from the perspective of of this movie, it's just it's it's a, it's a cool motivating factor at the beginning. It's a lot cooler to be undergoing a face off <laughs> Yeah. operation to prevent a cam bio weapon than it is to prevent like some like package bomb being delivered to supreme court justice
0: right some sort of conventional weapon but i don't i don't want to say that a movie that's focused entirely on conventional weapons would be bad because i think our final movie that we want to talk about here is lord of war which the weapon in this is completely conventional weapons there's no discussion of loose nukes which i think would have been a kind of a fun joke if he would have made about um well, I tried to get into the, the Loose Nukes world, but it was not It was too hard to break into, so I focused more on conventional <laughs> stuff. The character in this one, his name is Yuri Orloff. The hairstyle, business caliber. It's very pretty normal hair, but the level of cage rage in this one, two out of ten. It's He's very calm for pretty much... There's one moment where he yells at this, this dictator in Liberia. I think beyond that, I would say it's pretty calm. Would you agree? So I haven't seen it in
1: a hot second, but I have seen this movie repeatedly because it comes on a lot. And it's actually quite good Yeah, as far as Nick Cage movies go, that is. I,
0: I, is he really super calm the entire time? I think his general demeanor is this nihilistic, uh, I'm doing this for business purposes or to fulfill some sort of need. Uh, he, he just a, He's a dispassionate business person pretty much throughout the entirety of the movie. His brother, played by Jared Leto, is more of the the wild, yeller, more energetic person. I think he's tends to be the pretty on the level, straight face guy throughout the entire this film, except for one or two scenes. Oh, you're right. Jared Leto is is
1: the one who's just going crazy and doing like tons of Coke the whole time. Yeah, okay. So Jared Leto is really paving the way for Nick Cage's character in Bad Lieutenant, the Werner Herzog yep. rendition, right? Pretty much. Just as an aside, how do we think Nick Cage is In real life, like where is Nick Cage on the cage rage meter just being himself day to day? Do we think he's like Keanu Reeves, just super chill, or do we think he's actually like doing these like weird
0: things? Well, I think he's doing weird things, but I would probably put him at a one. I mean, he's an artist. I think Nick Cage is naturally a one. I would say so. I mean, he's, he's done some interesting things like buying a bunch of castles. He, <laughs> I, I did my bachelor party in new Orleans and we went on it and he loves new Orleans. He went we went on his tour, uh, walking tour of new Orleans. That's how nerdy my bachelor party was. And we went to this old um, cemetery, open air cemetery. Cause in new Orleans, you can't bury anybody because the water level is too high. So if you buried somebody, it would float away. These old cemeteries where it's, it's above ground and, Nick Cage bought a giant pyramid-looking thing in the middle of this very old-style cemetery, and there's just this pyramid. You can look up on the internet, and it's the Nick Cage Pyramid about where he thinks he's gonna pass away at some point and, and get buried. I think he does things like that. Wait, is this like national? Is this like national treasure, Nick Cage? Or this is real? I mean, this is real life stuff, man. So I think that's what Nick Cage gets into. But I don't think he's going around yelling at people looking for rockets on a day-to-day basis. I that's would say his Cage Rage is the one. I think he's a normal, he, he, he he's an artist, weird kind of guy, which is totally cool. Uh, all
1: right, all right. Well, I'm gonna do some research and I'm gonna prove you wrong. I think Nick Cage naturally is like a seven, a six or seven.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's that's my hypothesis. Anyway, our ne- our next episode will will go into in depth documentaries on Cage.
1: So, Lord of War came out in 2005. Interesting timing. Whereas some of the previous movies, The Rock and Face Off, really focused on the kind of in vogue threat of non-state actors getting access to Cambio or loose nukes. Mm -hmm. Lord of War took a turn towards small arms. And in particular, I think it kind of picked up on what was in the early 2000s, the more proximate issue, uh, which was ethnic conflict. Uh, especially in the developing world. So Nick Cage really kind of rides these threats to international security in very odd ways.
0: (laughs) His character is based on like an amalgamation of different real-life gunrunners. Some people, they they describe it as Russian uh, gunrunner Victor Bout. Uh, So it seems like this movie, in a way, is aiming for an incredible amount of authenticity uh, to the point where Amnesty International uh, endorsed the film officially as highlighting arms trafficking by the international arms industry. So that there is this sense of we're trying to ground this in as best we can in some sort of real life situation. Even some of the characters, like there's this dictator who's based on Charles Taylor in Liberia. Right. Uh, there's even like this all over North type character, you know, selling arms in Iran Contra. So they're they're trying to make it more uh, realistic and including the things you mentioned. This. Conflicts, ethnic conflicts in Africa, in other parts of the world, uh, in the early, basically, it mostly takes place in the 90s.
1: Yeah, in 2005, that's when a lot of these issues were coming to the fore, specifically around that time, that's when uh, in the United States, especially the general public was really grappling with the ramifications of failing to come to the aid of the Rwandans during the genocide in 94. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of attention being paid to that because of Darfur unfolding at the time. So, I mean, this movie kind of really dropped at this key moment in which a a lot of the focus in terms of international security was on civil war, the kind of impact of these sort of uh, weapons, rather than the more kind of visceral threat of like, glowing green VX balls or yep. loose nukes that were pretty, that's pretty prevalent a lot in, in movies in the nineties. Let me just read the the one sentence plot <laughs> description from IMDb, which really just sums it up. Uh, an arms dealer confronts the morality of his work as he is being chased by an Interpol agent.
0: Yep. And the Interpol agent is played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, I think he's, he's pretty good in this film. Uh but you get this sense of Yuri Orlov played by Nick Cage and he's got a, a brother uh, who's very, I think his name is Vitaly in the movie. He's The brother is more reluctant to get involved in this. Like he has more of a sense of, of morality about selling weapons, not just selling weapons, but who you sell them to and what they would be used for. Nicolas Cage is very much, hey, I sell the weapon. I'm not responsible for how it's used. Uh, there's this amazing opening montage where it's a combination of CGI and kind of point of view of a single bullet Mm-hmm. Being made, and you see it from while it's on this assembly line, being stamped and molded and attached to the the actual gunpowder and the shell and everything, and it gets put into a box. It gets sent to the Soviet Union, and then gets sent to, I think, in somewhere in, in, in liberia and then it gets shot, fired, and then kills a kid in the middle of this conflict. I, I think that's one of the most powerful opening montages to a film, and really sets the tone for what this movie is about. And there's this running commentary about. The Cold War stayed cold. There wasn't a direct U.S.-Russian conflict. But at the end of the day, these weapons, I think he makes his joke like, I'm going to let them see action.
2: The most sophisticated fighting machines, built for a war with America that never happened. Thanks to me, they'd finally get to fire a shot in anger.
0: And he's mostly just a transactional business guy. He seems like Yuri found his way. In the sense of selling these things, as opposed to what he formerly was, which was like a, a, a restaurantier, restaurant owner, and he wasn't too happy with that particular part of his life. Yeah, but I think the Interpol agent story is fascinating because there's, you know, there's this cat and mouse game, and one of the, I would say, the theme of this movie. You want to connect it back to the WMD side, and I, I would love to get your reaction to this because it really confronts as people who work in the WMD field, uh, you know, mostly nuclear, and on a day to day basis it really confronts this. The Interpol agent's, Jack Valentine is his name, uh, talks to Yuri and says, Why are we playing games? You traffic arms. Trade.
2: Trade. Traffic. You get rich by giving the poorest people on the planet the means to continue killing each other. Do you know why I do what I do? I mean, there are more prestigious assignments. Keeping track of nuclear arsenals, you'd think that more critical to world security, but it's not. No, 9 out of 10 war victims today are killed with assault rifles and small arms like yours. Those nuclear missiles, they sit in
0: their silos. Your AK-47, that is the real weapon of mass destruction. And it gets at this point that we are, you know, largely the media or maybe people in the policy world are focused on weapons of mass destruction because of the, you know, whatever reason it happens to be this large impact. Maybe it's more in the in the news but on a day-to-day basis, it's small arms that are causing these conflicts. I don't know. I thought that was a fascinating little piece to it that you don't really get in a lot of films. So I don't know if you have any reactions. If you heard this argument, people making it to you maybe in your career, I certainly have. Yeah, no, it's an it's an, it's an
1: interesting question. So a few points. First, I heard from someone who used to work on the Hill that this issue actually came to the fore I forget what exact year this was, but there was basically a discussion about how one goes about defining the term weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is probably a well-known story to most, but at some point, the way that it was being defined, it it could conceivably apply to small arms and guns in particular. And of course, given the Second Amendment, uh, there were some concerns that this could be used to describe privately owned uh, guns in, in domestically in, in the U.S. How one goes about defining the term weapons of mass destruction, um, you could certainly include uh, these sort of weapon systems as well. So nowhere is more prevalent than in the discussion today uh, that's heated up in the wake of uh, numerous mass shootings in, in the U.S. about how, uh, how one goes about defining the nature of this threat from, from these systems. Uh, second, from a more kind of theoretic And strategic perspective. As you know, there's this well known logic of the stability instability paradox. So I think this is not only kind of a post Cold War issue, in which as the kind of specter of nuclear weapons receded, one focuses more on kind of these underlying conflicts that are being waged with small arms. But I mean, look, this was an issue that was prevalent during the Cold War as well. You know, there was heavy focus on the existential threat of civilization ending weapons being pointed at each other throughout the Cold War. But, you know, one of the propositions is that because if you have stability at that strategic level, uh, this essentially opens up room at the conventional and subconventional level to wage proxy conflict and other sorts of provocations.
0: Things like v- Vietnam. We've also seen it to,
1: to a degree in, in, in South Asia with mm-hmm. India and Pakistan. Uh, about whether, whether that logic applies to Pakistan's acquisition of nuclear weapons is essentially providing them cover to conduct subconventional uh, operations with groups that they can plausibly deny they don't have affiliation with. This issue, I think, has always been there, and I guess maybe the question is, why was this so much more prevalent in the nine in the late '90s and into the early 2000s? Was it because of the focus on some of these atrocities that were being committed and 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 just this wave of civil war, whether it was in Bosnia, Kosovo, or in uh, parts of Africa? What do you think? Do you think it's because there were there were some of these conflicts being waged that all of a sudden we were paying attention to and looking at in a different light now that there wasn't this kind of superpower context.
0: I think the movie does a pretty good job of describing that a lot of the ease of access for weapons and and simply as armed traffic increases in these conventional weapons, the surplus of material that was made available once the Cold War ended, these are still...
1: So they they certainly make that case that the sudden surge in supply had some sort of impact, but... It's a movie. It, you know, it's not going to be able to really tease out the various causal factors that lead to ethnic conflict. You know, it's hard to say how much of an effect that had it probably had some effect. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of scholarship that tries to unpack some of these dynamics. I guess my point is more about it's less about what was actually going on with the implosion of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and the easy access to guns. And more about why was it from a public, from the general public's perception, if we were focusing on loose cam bio nuke during the 1990s, why the turn towards small arms and and ethnic conflict by the early 2000s?
0: If I would describe it simplistically, uh, this is not an area that I've studied, but I think it's, I've, I've come across arguments made where There was this sense of anxiety that was so strong with people during the Cold War that it just was a matter of moments. It was a matter of years before there would be some sort of nuclear exchange. And then that pressure was was released when the Cold War ended. So there's a sense of, yeah, there's some problems in terms of loose material. But for a while, there was this idea of a peace dividend, an idea that we could start to pull back. Uh, the number of of military deployments and we can we're we're okay and then as we now start to worry about these conflicts that I think come up because of the fact that there wasn't this bipolar world anymore where there was two superpowers that could essentially put their thumb down on uh, maybe ethnic rivalries because the way the world was drawn up when you take that away then it's now a question of well will the U.S. as the sole superpower be a police officer in ethnic conflicts and there was not necessarily that stomach. After all of the Cold War, we thought now we'd be able to move on to more domestic-focused things. I, I would, I would maybe push back a little bit on the idea that we, where you described it as this focus now on ethnic conflicts. I think the, the debate in people in the United States, at least, was we're not focusing on these ethnic conflicts. We're just we're trying to essentially we're now in a world where this is not a problem anymore, and it basically took things like 9/11 and Rwanda and people's response to that then we start to really focus on it and i would say that's why you see this movie come out in 2005 as opposed to 1996.
1: Yeah, i think i think i think that's a fair assessment. I think i think there was kind of a a search for America's role and American grand strategy at the time.
0: Nick Cage i think in this movie i enjoy this one more in terms of the the accuracy problems that sometimes some of these other films have because i think there's a pretty good Depiction of tools used by arms traffickers in this film. New Cage likes to run through the litany of the things that he does uh, in the conventional weapons space. But you know, some of the things that I do on a day to day basis is is look at how countries like North Korea or other dealers that work in the WMD field they use some of the very same tools. So he mentions things like talking in code, so you don't understand what uh, if you're if someone's listening in, not knowing exactly what they're talking about. But more complicated things like uh there's this great scene of a ship and uh Jared Leto and Nick Cage have to change the registry of the ship and they basically just paint a different name on the side of the ship and change the flag well i think that's very simple and there's more complicated things you need yeah. to do to make that work but some of the things like shipping registries where a north korean vessel for example will register as their ship involving say in malaysia and they'll change out the crew but most of it's still probably North Korean crew. And these no longer look like North Korean ships, which are no, which are under sanction. They look, they look like a, a Malaysian ship. False flags on ships. All these things are tools. It's gotten to the point where it happens so frequently that people are getting a little bit better at recognizing when a ship is actually a, a North Korean ship or someone else. That we see more of these ship-to-ship transfers. Ships don't actually go into port. They just go up to another vessel and just transfer their goods there and then move on to North Korea or to an export group. You see more of those things. Nick Cage mentions making deals complicated and trade deals very convoluted. Things like fake end-user certificates, making it look like it's going to go to Singapore when really the end-user is Liberia. Uh, Ship parts and components being separated and shipped separately uh, in large quantities perhaps to avoid attention if there was only a small amount. Go through countries with lax regulations and untrained compliance officers. These are all real things that happened in the conventional space, but we worry about them as uh, someone trying to do like arms exports or uh, export controls. All of these, things yeah, no, abso-
1: absolutely. That, that's that's actually a good point.
0: It, it happens very quickly. There's even a, a fun mention of nuke stuff that says he changed the shipping container labels to farm equipment or quote unquote radioactive waste. And no one wants to deal with that. Yeah. Um, although I would say if it's labeled as radioactive waste, you look at the shipping manifest and you see if they have permits to ship radioactive waste, which I think would be a whole separate debate. But anyway, I think that there's, there's this sense of accuracy at least at the most shallow level, but I I found that fascinating. And I just want to make it clear to people that maybe watch that movie. These are tools used by people who smuggle conventional weapons it's used by things, people that smuggle uh, sanctioned goods that aren't necessarily weapons, but are things that, you know, when North Korea ships uh, coal out of their country, they will often describe them as some other type of thing that is not sanctioned. and Yeah,
1: it's the basic tactics for illicit procurement and trade. So it's whether it's human trafficking, with small arms, yeah. sensitive, controlled goods that would be on a so-called trigger list. Because they might be useful for a nuclear weapons program. Yeah, that's that, that's a really good point. I hadn't I hadn't kind of thought about this movie illustrating some of those you know pretty firm tactics of exploiting you know the so-called gray market and the ability to kind of not do something that's completely uh, you know clandestine or illegal, but you're trying to essentially hide in plain sight often and kind exactly. of exactly. You know, set up deception points, uh, trying to exploit weak links, decompose something. And, you know, it's just, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't really thought that, about this movie kind of making what is, in some ways, kind of a, what seems like a dry subject, kind of bringing some, shining some light on it from kind of a Hollywood perspective.
0: And I think Nick Cage in this movie is very good at delivering these very, talking about end user certificates and changing the late the flag on a ship he does such a good job of describing it um, but here's the here's an interesting thing that I I did not expect to have this reaction is this movie part of the reason why it's so accurate not only in terms of its plot points but also its depiction of things is because the filmmakers uh, the director also helped co-write it they got together with some real-life arm dealers and some of the movie oh, wow. scenes of it the tank scene where there's this line of rows yeah. of tanks, those were real weapons sales about to take place. It was a Czech arms dealer who said, "All right, you have to, you can film, but I need these back because these are going to, I think it was like going to Liberia in a couple of weeks." Um, so they they definitely have this real stuff. They even they even bought a bunch of uh, actual AK forty seven equivalent weapons because it was cheaper to buy this stockpile than it would be to buy a bunch of prop guns. If you want to be accurate, you're going to have to do your research. And if you want to do field research to make an accurate movie, they still essentially worked very closely with people who are causing the same types of problems that they're criticizing in the film itself. So I don't really know. I don't have an answer to that, how close you can get to collaborating with arms dealers and criticizing them at the exact same time. I don't have an answer to that. That was just something that kind of annoyed me. I don't know if you had a... Upon hearing that type of information... You think is that okay? It's like kind of like if you wanted to do the movie next, and to be more accurate, you call up Osama, <laughs> Osama bin Laden or a terrorist group and you say, "What would you do in the situation?"
1: I guess it gets back to this point that arms sales aren't necessarily illegal. Yeah. So it's more it's more of a, a moral quandary than it is, are you doing something that's clearly crossing that line? That's the whole point of of these sort of procurement networks is that they're trying to establish themselves in these legal gray zones between what's prohibited and permitted. Clearly there's some ethical questions that one has to grapple with, but.
0: Well, ultimately Nick Cage gets caught by Interpol um, after his brother gets killed in a a deal that went wrong. Nick Cage gets released at the end of the movie, even though all evidence points to, you know, him, his family turns on him, everyone, everything happens, but because he sells arms to people that Oliver North type character, the U S government doesn't want to pass along this stuff. There's a reference made to the president of the United States being the largest arms dealer in, in, the, in the world. Like all of these things go through it. He's able to get released because they you rely on him to do these gray area trades that they can't do. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Well, the the last complaint that I have with this movie is um, I work with Interpol a lot uh, in, in the, my day-to-day job. And Interpol, they're an incredible organization. They do a lot of stuff. They do a lot of information exchanges, trainings, coordinating different types of agencies that deal with law enforcement work. But according to this film, Interpol agents can ride helicopters. They can commandeer ships. They can shoot down. They do a lot of these interdiction stuff. Interpol doesn't do any of that stuff. They don't have investigative powers. They don't arrest anybody. They don't have field agents. And they don't certainly take down warships. Uh, apparently, according to this film. So I think that's one little small thing. Interpol's great. You don't need to make them into a superhero. I don't know why they did that.
1: <laughs> because it's Hollywood, man. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's the same reason they made the VX, like, green, glowing orb.
0: Well, let's let's uh, let's wrap up here, because uh, we've gotten pretty in-depth on the Nick Cage spectrum. Concluding thoughts, what would you say kind of ties all of these various films together? Um, which, what things are done better in some of the movies, whether well, or not done well in others, uh, I think we can now kind of have this lot of kind of wider conversation.
1: With the exception of Lord of War, the use of chem, bio nuclear is essentially it's just it's just kind of a plot driver. Hmm. I mean, they're not actually. I think I think some of the other movies that that the Super Critical Podcast has looked at. I've heard of that one. Actually, try to delve into some more of the. The realistic implications um, or the causes thereof of of, of these weapon systems being available, and so if you think of something like the Peacemaker, I mean that really did try and delve more into kind of like why a terrorist group might seek these weapons, how they would go about acquiring them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what some of the various motivations of, like, third-party brokers were that were trying to sell weapons, etc. cetera. And same with, with the other kind of big 90s nuke movie, Some of All Fears. So I, with the interesting thing about the Nick Cage movies is that it's, like, the WMD in it, it's just kind of like a sideshow.
0: Why he goes from point A to point B as opposed to... It just, it, like, it
1: ratchets up the stakes of... Of of like the arena that Nick Cage is operating in, it gets it gets it to the level where like Nick Cage can really transform and shine into his like create, into his like best, you know. Without without the WMD, the stakes just aren't there for this kind of '90s style action movie. I, I think I think what they were trying to do is essentially kind of like ride the wave of '90s post-Soviet concern about loose material, unsecured weapons, etc. That was definitely in the public consciousness. And they just picked that up and they used that to create a scenario where Nick Cage can be in a buddy, a buddy cop <laughs> a buddy cop scenario with Sean Connery, which was their chemistry was pretty awesome, um, or set up this like really insane kind of plot for face off with swapping bodies and faces. Or who who, who the hell knows what's going on in Next, but I think they attempted to do something there too.
0: Yeah, I was trying to think of all these movies are kind of two-hander movies where there's like Nick Cage and someone else that he plays off of. But in Next, I mean, he doesn't really play off of Jessica Biel. I mean, he kind of doesn't really play off of Julianne Moore either. No. Um, He plays off of himself and his perception of time and his other, you know, various uh, selves that are going different directions. Maybe that's what it is. Let's do our final rating system. Uh, for each of these movies we can go through them one by one uh, i would think for this one we'll do a rating system of one out of five doves being released in a gunfight because i think Boom. one one dove is kind of a lame magic trick probably something that frank cadillac would do in the movie next but five doves is a real classy affair i think that's that's kind of the should be the goal for any were sort there of dove. doves
1: going off in face off
0: i think there were several doves flying off <laughs> Uh, so let's let's start there. Actually, let's start with face off. How many uh, out of five Doves would you say uh, re- released in a gunfight? This movie is uh, five. Definitely. You put that at the high top. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna give it a four. I think I like it a lot, uh, but I think it's still just at that f- at four point to me. You think is a that's a perfect movie?
1: Uh, yeah, I think I think look, it did a lot. It did a lot very well with the action, and the plot is still. I mean, it still has cultural relevance. People, it it has it has such staying power. I mean, granted, I'm not saying this is like a masterpiece. <laughs> it's a Nick, it's a Nick Cage movie. It's an action movie. But as far as like within the spectrum of these movies, I think it's definitely the strongest.
0: All right, so I'm going to change my rating here a little bit because if you, we, I think you're the right way to go about it. It's not comparing uh, this movie to say Casablanca or Schindler's right. List. Let's compare them to other Nick Cage movies. Now it jumps to a four point five for me, so I'm gonna I'm not putting that as the official marker. I think that's a pretty pretty good rating. But what about for The Rock?
1: Eleven twelve year old me in the '90s would have given this movie a five. Obviously, mm-hmm. unfortunately, Tristan circa 2018, upon re 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 watching it, uh, with a lot of the problems that came to my attention, I'm gonna have to drop it from a five to a two.
0: Ooh, ouch. That's that's pretty that's that's a big drop here. Um, I was pretty pissed off about this movie. <laughs> so as as I recognize the concerns you have being legitimate, I think upon a rewatch for me, enough of the other stuff is so good, I still put this one out of four. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, but let's go Lord of War. We we both kind of like that one. What would you give that one? I give it a solid four. I would too. I was surprised how much I enjoyed rewatching that movie because it is a little bit. It's it's dry. It's very very uh, difficult subject to kind of get through. Um, but I remember Joel, uh, who people may know from the Super Critical podcast, he had this movie poster up on his wall. And I always loved it because it was like Nick Cage's face, but it was made up by a bunch of different bullets. Oh, and yeah, yeah. That was cool. So this movie sets the tone at the beginning with that great opening scene, and it just keeps it going through. And it's one of those films, you watch it, if you're enjoying the movie at the end and you're like, that's great, and you're not really thinking through some of the major yeah, moral I questions, think it's, you're not watching that movie right.
1: I think it's probably one of the better overall movies if you're comparing it beyond Nick, just Nick Cage movies.
0: Yep. Uh, but not one of the better Nick Cage movies or movies in general. Next. I give that a one. It's the worst movie I've seen for any sort of podcast, uh, and I, I highly don't recommend anyone to see it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it should not be watched by anyone. I give it a zero.
0: There, there were no doves going off. The doves that flew during the Seoul Olympics, that flew up onto the, uh, the Olympic torch and then got burned when the torch went off, those number of doves. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I struggle to say I tried to watch Ghost Rider on a plane back from Europe. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, it was towards the end of my flight. I got my work done. There was nothing for me to really do except kill time, and I have a general rule of not watching good movies on on planes. So that kind of leaves me to pick through the crappiest movies that are available. Uh-huh. Ghost Rider was available, and I figured that could be a WMD, uh, the Ghost Rider. <laughs> so I figured I should I should review it, uh, and I couldn't finish it. It was it was better than next, though, and that's saying a lot. So I would give Ghost Rider a one, mm-hmm. maybe a a, a half. Half a dove, which is only slightly better than the next. Pretty, pretty, pretty
0: terrible. I would not recommend next to anybody, um, but I do have some stuff to recommend to people that enjoy Nick Cage movies and WMD stuff or any sort of the topics that are discussed in this particular podcast. Uh, I would recommend people checking out the super critical podcast. I've heard that one's pretty good. Uh, if you enjoyed today's nuke discussion, but for some dumb reason want to talk about something other than nuclear Nick Cage, I don't know why you would want to do that. I would check that out. Uh, the 2007 book I mentioned earlier by Jonathan Tucker called War of Nerves, Chemical Weapons from World War I to Al-Qaeda. That book is terrific. Uh, it's, if you see nerve agents in the news a lot today, uh, potentially Russian agents using uh, a version of VX gas on ex-spies in the UK, uh, killing some of those people and setting off a huge health problem over there. Those type of chemicals are described in great detail in a very accessible way for people that aren't nerve agent nerds. That's uh, a great book to check out, uh, Jonathan Tucker's War of Nerves. And in terms of a movie, I'm going to recommend a movie people maybe don't like, but I enjoy quite a lot. It's called In Time from 2011. It stars Justin Timberlake. It's a movie that I weirdly kept watching at hotels, but never the whole way through until I finally just saw it at Best Buy and I, and I bought it for like $5. It's weird, it's this movie where everybody in this world when they reach 21, 22 years old, they are given an a def, indefinite amount of time that like stored in their body and it counts down and, and when they're to zero, they die but there's this weird story about there's wealthy people that have lots of time on their system. You can add time lose time. It's currency. Did you,
1: do you really like in time?
0: It's weird. I really like it. It's there's some parts (laughs) that aren't super great. Um, but I really, overall, it's this weird movie that I, I want to see more of it. It's kind of how I ended up with the movie. I wanted to see the story continue. And I did not expect that when I was watching it in parts. Um, it made me think of a couple things. One Justin Timberlake and Nicolas Cage need to co-star in a movie together. Uh, I think they would make a really good pairing. And then also, it's directed by Andrew Nickel, who directed um, I believe he directed Lord of War. So it kind of all connects together uh, if you want to continue that. And and (laughs) I I bring it up in terms of time stuff because I think it's a better use of time as a plot device than the next did. Pretty much anything is. Do you have anything to recommend, Tristan?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I would strongly second Jonathan Tucker. The way Jonathan Tucker's book, uh, if you're looking for kind of the the stand, you know, the quintessential history of chemical weapons development and use, F- a fantastic book as well. Uh, if you're interested in 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 bio issues as they relate to international security, I would point you towards a few scholars. Uh, Seth Carius at National Defense University has written a number of uh, pretty phenomenal articles on the history of of these programs. Uh, There's a great book, which really challenges a lot of the conventional wisdom, and tries to explain why non-state actors have been remarkably unsuccessful at weaponizing bioweapons. It's called Barriers to Bioweapons, the Challenges of Expertise and Organization for Weapons Development. Hmm. Uh, And that's by uh, Sonia uh, Orgham-Gormley. and finally, the great Gregory Kloblitz, um has a series of uh, kind of classic articles on the international security implications of bioweapons that are uh, definitely worth reading.
0: Well, good. That's a good amount of homework for people to check out. I know we didn't really get too much into detail about bioweapons uh, because face off, really doesn't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so why would we? Um, but those are good sources for people to check out. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Tristan, thanks very much. I appreciate you coming on Skype and, and taking yeah, some fun. hours to talk about Nick Cage stuff. Yeah, dude, it's been great. Oh, no, not the, beast! Not the beast! Ah! Thanks for listening to another episode of the Nuke Cage podcast. If you have any suggestions or ideas for future episodes, we're on Twitter at Nuke Cage, N-U-K-E-C-A-G-E. Uh, you can let us know uh, what you thought about the episode here. I am at T.
1: Anders Volpe. That's T two E's. Anders, A N D E R S. Volpe, V's and Victor, O L P E.
0: Uh, if you enjoyed this program, I would also probably appreciate it if you consider looking up uh, one of our other favorite shows, the Supercritical Podcast. Check that out, subscribe to it, leave a five star review, and we might do another episode, I don't know, maybe a year from now on, on, on April 1st uh, about New Cage. Ghost Rider. Stay tuned for Ghost Rider. Exactly. Hellfire is definitely, I would say, a weapon of mass destruction for sure. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Tristan Volpe. And remember, if it's Nick Cage and the weapon is unconventional, we're bound to rage about it. Have a good one.